0: Psychology in Seattle. Hey, deserving listeners. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about the psychology of Larry Nasser. If you're not familiar with him, he was the main doctor for the USA Gymnastics national team. Uh, He was accused of molesting hundreds of young people and young adults, both males and females, from about the age of 1992 until 2016. That's, you know, 24 years, but he was probably abusing people way before that. And in this episode, I'm definitely going to get into his psychology. I'm definitely going to get into his history and maybe why he did these horrible things. But what I'm more interested in talking about are the implications for us and for society, because this isn't an isolated case. This happens frequently. And only the most sensational cases do we end up hearing about, and only very few cases actually get convicted. So, this episode is going to be about Larry Nasser, but it's also going to be about uh, an indictment on our society for letting this happen for so long, because I think that. People hear these kinds of stories about Larry Nasser and they go, Oh my God, he's such a monster. And they might hear a little bit more information like, Oh, there were people who enabled Larry Nasser to do these things. And they think, Oh, those enablers are terrible people. And then they walk away feeling like they're superior and that. They would never do such a thing. Well, I'm here to tell you that if you were in the position of the enablers, you probably would have enabled Larry Nasser to do it as well. And I know that might shock you and you might think you're better than that, but you're probably not. It's not a matter of being better. It's a matter of being embedded in a society that encourages this kind of thing. I mean, why would it happen so often? You know, it's like looking at World War II and Germany and looking at, you know, how did a whole country condone the genocide of parts of you know their citizenry were all were all Germans evil were they all terrible human beings no they were embedded in a system they were embedded in a sociocultural historical system that compelled the individuals to act in a certain way and i know we like to think of ourselves as these very individual people in the united states we like to think oh i'm my own person i i act on my own no you do not you do not act on your own and neither did the people around Larry Nasser who enabled him to do this. We created a society in which this happens, and I'm going to get into that. And I'm going to talk about how we can get out of it. It doesn't take a lot, but I think it, you know it's something that we can do, and we're not doing enough, clearly, because this is happening over and over and over again. It's not like we didn't know about child molestation when Larry Nasser began his serial raping. Uh, by the way, trigger alert to anything in this episode, because I'm, I'm going to be talking quite, I mean, not graphically, but it's going to be a you know pretty straightforward talk about rape, uh, child rape, and child molestation, and that sort of thing. So, you know, trigger warning. So, uh, Larry Nassar, he likely abused thousands of young people throughout his life, as I said, And again, we mainly focus on the female gymnasts, particularly the super famous Olympic gymnast that we all watched and loved on TV. Simone Biles, if you remember her, she was sort of a breakout star in recent years, Um, if you don't know who she is she's the african-american uh gymnast that you may have seen pictures of there's also michaela moroni a caucasian woman and if you're not familiar familiar with her you've probably seen the not impressed face meme you know there's that face of this girl kind of turning her lips and she even did the face with obama they they you know posed together she was quite famous as a gymnast but she was also famous for this meme so he abused those two women and hundreds of others. Um, so this went from the super famous Olympians to just regular students. And as I said, he also abused males. He also abused young children as young as five years old. So it wasn't just the gymnast he abused. He abused all any child he could get his hands on. And he also abused young adults. Like I said, he was accused of molesting at least 300 young women and girls as well as one young man. But I suspect his victim count is probably in the thousands since most victims never come forward. He's truly a monster, uh, similar to Bill Cosby or Harvey Weinstein. These three individuals are famous people who had decades and decades of abuse on people, seemingly without any remorse and seemingly without any efforts to stop. And they only stopped when they had to because they were either made to stop by the law or society made it so well known that no one wanted to be alone with them anymore. But that's not what I want to fo- focus on. Uh, people ask often ask me to talk about people like this, Larry Nasser, Ted Bundy. Uh, people have a fascination with individuals like this. They like to hear stories about monsters. I, I don't really get it personally. I mean, I, I listen to podcasts sometimes where they talk about this sort of thing. But sometimes it just feels like, why are we doing this? <laughs> like, is it, it, it's this, I mean, it's entertainment, so whatever. But... It's just not really that interesting to me. What I'm going to focus on is something else. I'm going to focus on us. We as a society, we enabled him to abuse those young people. So it's our fault too. And we need to look at that. If our society was different, he would have been caught within just a few months, not after 25 plus years. You know, this this is similar to the Jerry Sandusky case at Penn State. If you're not familiar with him, uh, he was at you know, at the at Penn State University and was a abuser for a long time and he was also a monster. But again, how did he and Bill Cosby and Harvey Weinstein and Larry Nasser get away with it for decades? Well, university officials enabled it by making excuses for him and covering it up. Um, that's one thing that people will talk about the uh, USA Gymnastics Association or administration or whatever. They covered it up as well. But, you know, we enabled it to um, and. There are thousands upon thousands of victims right now being harmed, and guess what? They're not coming forward. Why? Because our society is messed up, and that's what I want to talk about. The Me Too movement has helped, but we have a long way to go. So that's what I'm going to get into. Uh, I'm going to talk about what we can do to stop this from happening, because it's happening right now, and I'm I'm also going to talk about what parents can do to protect their children, and I'm also going to get into Larry Nasser's personality. Is he a psychopath? Does he have antisocial personality disorder? Um, what DSM diagnosis does he have? This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor at Antioch University in Seattle, and I'm also a professional podcaster now, thanks to the patrons. Uh, if you're a patron, uh, thank you so much. If you're not, please become a patron of the podcast. And When you become a patron, you get access to um, arguably our best episodes. We've done 950 episodes or so, and... Two or three hundred of them are uh, the best of our, you know, episodes, and they're only available to patrons. So go to Patreon and become a patron now. It's also a way that I just know that you like what I'm doing, which I'm not always quite sure of. Um, so just some some minor demographic details about Larry Nasser: Caucasian guy. He's 55 years old today, 2019. He's from Michigan. He was a physician at Michigan State University. He's married. He's been married or he was married for a long period of time and he has he had three children. So it was hard for me to find childhood information. It always frustrates me whenever I look into these people's lives and I don't really have a lot of reliable information about their childhood, which I think would be interesting to talk about. Maybe that'll come out more in the in future years with some biopic or something. But on Wikipedia, anyway, so take that with a grain of salt. It's a, it said that at the age of fifteen, he started working as a student athlete trainer for his high school girls' gym, gymnastics team. Uh, so, as a teenager, so I'm gonna I'm gonna speculate that he's always been since he was you know ten to fifteen years old. He's always been attracted to having sex with children and because uh, that's usually the the case usually people who are obsessed with having sex with young people they have those tendencies from a very early age if not um you know prepubescent so at the age of 15 he probably already had those inclinations and it's just speculation but it's 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 likely and he starts working for his high school as a student athletic trainer for the girls gymnastics team. And this is interesting, right? Because he's, he's just a kid. He's 15 years old and he is touching, I'm guessing, these girls. He's putting, you know, usually trainers will put tape on, uh, ankles or they'll wrap a knee or they'll, um, I don't know, just do maybe massage an arm that was hurt or something. And so at the age of 15, it's possible that he began to associate his pedophilic tendencies with gymnastics that, uh, you know, just to go off course a little bit here. Again, all this is speculation because I have no idea. But when we are 13 years old, 15 years old, we emerge often as a sexual creature and we start to associate certain things with what turns us on. So, if you're 13 years old and you're a young woman and you um, are getting sexual charges every once in a while and you see, I don't know, someone who is rapping, you really like a hip hop star and you just think, oh man, that guy is, uh, he really, you know, gets me going. (laughs) Really, that guy really makes me horny when I watch him on MTV or something. Well, a lot of things are getting encoded in the brain, getting associated with that sexual charge. Uh, The fact that he's on TV, the fact that he has a particular look to him, the fact that he has a certain aggression in his voice or something, the fact that he talks a lot, the fact that he uses his arms a lot or you know who whatever certain certain ways that his jeans look or something and then all those things become encoded into your uh, sexual repertoire, so to speak, things that will also turn you on. So originally, the, the way the genes looked on that guy didn't turn you on, but because he turned you on and because you were having that emerging sexuality, then suddenly the genes are now part of what turns you on. And then in a, in a, you see another fella, and he has the same kind of genes or same kind of look to it and you know, makes his butt look a certain way, and boom, you get a sexual charge because of, of that association. So we all have that, and we start developing those associations early in life, you know, prepubescent as well. And there's a lot of strong evidence for that. Anyway, so he, uh, Larry Nasser, is an emerging sexual person in his teenage years, probably already attracted to young people, but for him at that age they're not that much younger than him but anyway he starts to uh touch these gymnasts and i'm guessing just speculation that this began his sexual love affair with with young gymnasts and then it was you know just became a part of his life in the same way that you with your hip hop and your jeans you might like your husband of ten years to uh, dress up in those kinds of jeans, and you might want to play hip hop while you're having sex or something on the, on the on the Pandora station, and you know, so it's all f- fine and consensual and normal sexuality in that situation. But for Larry Nasser, it of course uh, was not. Um, so, uh, a way that this could have worked out better for Larry Nasser is if, you know, if we actually had ways of treating him and reaching out to him and helping direct his sexuality, it's possible that we would have been able to direct him towards uh, uh, associating sexuality not with sneaking a feel on a gymnast, but instead, Maybe he could have dated a gymnast and had consensual, mutually satisfactory sex with uh, another 15-year-old girl that was a gymnast or something. So uh, if there was some way we could have helped him from the beginning, we might have been able to steer him in a different direction, which I'll get into later. Okay, so he eventually gets a job as an adult working for the USA Gymnastics team. And for decades, he worked closely with the team and the coaches and the families and the kids. The, the gymnasts often had physical problems. Me not having lived in the gymnast world, watching the HBO documentary really gave me an idea, a glimpse into that world. Apparently for highly competitive gymnasts, they're in pain a lot. They have broken bones. I mean, they're it, they always make it look so easy, the the Olympians, right? They, they, the pommel horse thing, you know, they, they, they're flipping in the air, they're flying, and then they just nail this landing, boom! And it just looks like they're superhuman. They just look like when Iron Man lands in the three pointed pose, it looks like man, what an amazing feat. Well, what is happening in these gymnast bodies is. Uh, terrible things. Bones are breaking. uh, Ligaments are popping. Muscles are having problems. Spine problems. Neck problems. And when you are in a highly competitive uh, gymnastics situation, then you're really dependent on your uh, physician who knows how to treat such things. You need to have, and especially something as elite as the USA gymnastics team, you're going to have the cream of the crop when it comes to a physician, and Larry Nasser was the cream of the crop. He was uh, apparently amazing at what he did. People would report that he was a miracle worker, and this is something that I think gets lost in in the storytelling is is how g- good people uh, saw him, <laughs> how good at his job people saw him. For decades, he would uh, take pain you know people in pain who thought they would have to give up the sport altogether he would administer these treatments uh, which involved like stretching and kind of like chiropractor work and they would be pain-free and they'd go right back out and everything would be great and he had great bedside manner people described him as being very awkward kind of i mean not not very awkward, but kind of awkward socially kind of nerdy. They would talk about how he was just obsessed with the job that he was doing. He, he was obsessed. He was obsessed with the research. He was obsessed with the science behind sports medicine. And he would talk your ear off about how to do this. And, you know, the new research on that. Uh, But again, he came across socially as kind of nerdy, kind of awkward. He said, dad jokes, apparently, and he comes across as being very uh, meek and weak, and uh, and extremely kind seeming. People thought he was selfless. Uh, he would give his time and his energy. If there was a problem, he'd come running. He would help you. The victims. So after the you know everything came out and the convictions were done the victims and their families would describe him as a quote unquote, wonderful man. So even though he was doing these horrific things to kids and young people, he was also deeply loved by the gymnasts and their families. And that's the part that I think is the, the true mind screw of the whole situation. Cause it's like, well, what, you know, and because again, I'm just going to keep repeating this, that, People walk away from a story like this when they hear it, when they hear the tagline. They're like, oh, you know, this monster in the mountains did this horrible thing. And this, you know, this group of, oh, and then they hear a little bit more of the information. and they think, Oh, you know, there's this group of people around the monster who are also awful human beings who enabled this to happen and they didn't do anything. And, you know, what kind of parent lets your kid go alone with your doctor uh, what kind of parent would put their kids in harm's way like that? And, you know, and then, it, and then people uh, wipe their hands and walk away and think, yeah, I would never do that. It would never happen to me. And it's the same thing as saying, if I lived in Germany, I would have stood up to the Nazis and not participated in the genocide of Jewish people. Um, not likely. Not like Maybe. Not likely. So, you know, that's the important thing. And so one of the aspects of this to, that I, I want you to really accept as real is the accounts from the parents saying that even after all was said and done, when when they look back for many of the parents and many of the gymnasts, even after knowing what he did, they still have a fondness for him because of the years and years and years of dedication and love and Um, kindness and generosity that he gave the families and the kids and that was real now we can get into whether or not it was a grand manipulation or not and uh, we'll get into that debate in a bit but that needs to be acknowledged that he wasn't a monster at all to anybody he was the nicest most wonderful most you know uh seemingly weak individuals that they'd ever met. They loved him, quote unquote. Many people they would say they loved him, actually using the word love. So, let's talk about grooming here for a second because that's the next thing that kind of pops in your mind, right? It's like, well, you know, sure, he was a wonderful guy, but he was he was grooming people, right? So, he was only wonderful and So he could trick them into allowing him to be able to abuse these kids, right? Well, yeah, maybe. So let's get into that. But first, let's take a break. All right, we're back from the break. Again, as I always say after the break, if you haven't become a patron of the podcast, do so now. Go to patreon.com, become a patron. Uh, know that part of your pledge goes towards various charities that we support. We've given over $10,000 to various charities over the past couple years and we we just love to support important causes and also of course when you become a patron you support our cause of making this podcast. This episode for example of Larry Nasser it probably took me, I don't know, 10 to 20 hours to prep for it. I It's a complicated thing. I, I have uh, 15 pages of notes here that I had to sort of take and organize. And so when you become a patron, it literally gives me money so I don't have to lose my house <laughs> spending time in this podcast. Because essentially I take my you know work away from my other work that I get paid for, I cut back on my regular job so I can spend time in this podcast. So if you like, you know, good content, then become a patron, please. Very nice of you. Uh, so let's talk about grooming. So grooming is a slow methodical process. And it's uh, again, often something that people think that they would be immune to. They would say, well, I I would detect the grooming or once we cross a certain line, I, I would say no. I, I draw boundaries. And again, maybe you would but most people don't. And most people are not stupid. Most people are smart. Most people know the deal and yet they can be manipulated in this way. It's just really hard. Um, you know, like uh, as a similar phenomenon, people will often talk about how they would never be in an abusive relationship with a spouse. Well, I'm here to tell you, being very close to abusive relationships, both both personally and professionally, that anyone can get beaten down slowly and methodically to the point where they find themselves in a very abusive relationship and have a really hard time getting out. Anybody can, anyone can have that happen to them and it's the same for grooming. Anyone can be groomed because when you're a good groomer, when you're a when you're a Larry Nasser, you just know what to do. And you know how to play the game, and he definitely knew how to groom people. He was extremely methodical in his grooming, and he took a lot of time. One could say that, you know, you could argue that his entire medical degree was in preparation so that he could harm young people. So let's get into the definition here of grooming in a nutshell. It's just preparing a child to be, to be abused. Sometimes it's applied to older people too, but it's generally applied to child victims and you, the, the abuser will groom They'll prepare the child to be abused by manipulating not only the child, but they'll also manipulate the child support system. They'll also manipulate the time and place in which they uh, abuse, in which they get access to the kid. And they might even manipulate the community in in the way that Larry Nassar, uh, uh, you know, he groomed everyone. He groomed the children. He groomed the parents, he groomed the support system of the families, he groomed the time and place because he would figure out ways to get the kids alone, and he groomed the the community. He he groomed the gymnastics community and the press and everybody. And when people, abusers will groom by manipulating all these people and things, they are Are trying to gain access this is the important part to an abuser is they they need to get access to that child they also need to manipulate everyone to get the child to comply with them it's very important to the perpetrator that the child comply and they also need to make sure that the child doesn't talk about uh, what happened So, it's this kind of three-step process where they need to gain access, they need to get the child to comply with the sexual act, essentially, and then afterwards, they need to make sure the child doesn't doesn't talk about it. Now, there are um, also different steps we can talk about here in terms of uh, they will select a victim. So, so that's an important part of the step because one way you can actually protect your children is by not making your child um, a, an enticing individual and we can get it well i might as well get into that now so one of the ways that uh, you know perpetrators will look for good victims are they'll look for kids who are highly compliant to begin with and who are kind of quiet and seemingly weak. You know, if, if you have a kid who's really loud and says whatever's on their mind, then perpetrators are going to stay away from that kid. Now, I'm not saying you're supposed to raise a bunch of little assholes. <laughs> what, what I'm saying is that um, if your kid, so there's two things I'm saying. One is, is to help your kids with assertiveness, that's for sure. You know, assertiveness is not being an asshole. Assertiveness is being assertive you know, asserting your needs while taking care of other people at the same time. But um, so I'm also I'm saying that, but I'm also saying that if your kid just dispositionally comes across as kind of weak and obedient, you you might want to just be extra careful around them. This isn't to say that outspoken kids can't be abused because they absolutely can um, not be not Most of the factors involved in preventing child abuse involve society, not individual. We focus way too much on how do we teach our kids, and that's a very important. I'll get into more of that later. Absolutely, massively important. But unless you have a society that supports the people coming forward and a legal system that actually responds and all the other things that need to happen, it doesn't matter how much we tell our kids to come forward. They know otherwise because they watch society and they realize that they that they shouldn't come forward. So anyway. Um, so the different steps are they will select a victim. So that's the, so they usually they'll target, you know, maybe they'll have like a handful of victims on their mind, but often in the moment, they just have one victim on their mind. They're like, there's my person in a sick way. You can equate it to you go, you know, you're single, you're a 25 year old and you go to a party. And you you want to meet someone and you see someone across the room or, you know, you see you scan the room, you're chatting with people. Then, you you know, you see about five people that are good candidates. But then you see this one person across the room like that's the person I want to talk to. Well, it's the same as that in a sick way. But it's it's fundamentally very similar because to the pedophile who acts out on on their urges, because many pedophiles don't, they will... uh, it's the same, it feels the same to them. It, it feels like a romantic slash regular sexual encounter for them. Now it's completely sick and completely deviant and harmful, but to them, to many pedophiles, and I think to Larry Nasser, that's, that's what it was like because he had a condition that made him attracted to kids. And so anyway, they, they will select a victim. They'll gain, a- they have to gain access. So, select a victim and they have to manipulate the situation to gain access. Now, Larry Nasser had this wonderful setup where he had full access to kids alone in his uh, exam room. Um, now, sometimes he would gain access just by hiding the abuse from the parents. So, sometimes the parents would be in the exam room and, the- and Larry Nasser would figure out a way to trigger a warning because i'll get into some some specifics here larry nasser would put his finger into the people's you know vaginas uh to the young women's or girls vaginas and he would be doing it that for a while right in front of the parents but the parents couldn't see it the and and the kid would just be you watch the hbo documentary and they actually talk to the victims about this and it it it, it becomes very clear but to the victim, she's like, um, "What is happening right now?" And she's looking over the parents, and the parents are just like oblivious, just going. I mean, they're not oblivious oblivious, like uh, they're stupid. But Larry Nasser was just so good at what he did that he he probably knew that if he did it this way, the kids would learn. Oh, so I guess this is okay, or. I can't really turn to my parents for help because they don't really care. And so he would, in a way, it was, it was, might have been his plan in some instances to make sure the parents were in the room because it, it assured that the kid would be quiet afterwards and would allow him to escalate the situation, which he usually did. But anyway, so the, through the grooming process, you select a victim, you gain access, and then you have to develop trust. This is a very important step to the grooming. You get the victim to trust you. You get the support system around the victim to trust you. You you create a very trustworthy vibe to the world. Uh, you come across as very trustworthy to everyone. And you might actually be very trustworthy in all the other ways except for the one in which they victimize people. So you might actually be true to your word. You might be very dependable. You might be very loyal. You might be very nice. You might be very helpful and generous. And, you know, they might all, them, all those things might be true. Many pedophiles, and that's because that's the other thing is that people walk away is like, oh, Larry Nasser, he must have been this monster. No. He was, like I said, a wonderful, wonderful human being. And he was also a molester, a child molester. And that's an important thing to remember. And people say, oh, he couldn't possibly have been really wonderful, right? And I would have seen through it if I were. No, you would not have seen through it. I guarantee you on that level, you would never have detected, oh, he's a child molester. There's just no way. Because everyone saw him as this wonderful person. Because he, on the outside, was. Now, maybe on the inside, he was also wonderful. I mean, again, we'll get into the debate on that later, but... Um, So either he was extremely good at manipulating everyone or he was actually legitimately a nice person, which is also many pedophiles are legitimately nice people. Um, And they have this, you know, this attraction that is very compulsive to them. Um, So select a victim, gain access, uh, build trust, and then you have to desensitize the child to the touching. This is an important part of the grooming. So the perpetrator won't typically go straight for the gusto uh, so like H- harvey weinstein would do a little bit of this but mostly he just went for the gusto he just utilized his power his physical strength and his um, social power his you know occupational power in show business to just to just strong arm people into uh, doing things that they didn't want to do uh, Larry Nasser didn't do that. He didn't just. Oh, he did that sometimes for sure, but I think for most of his victims, he he took the slow route, and he would desensitize. So, so with Larry Nasser, he one would get the child used to him touching their body for regular sports kinds of things and he would get them, you know, to consider that normal. And again, watch the HBO documentary cuz you see this footage of Larry Nasser doing these treatments and Larry Nasser in his regular medical tra- apparently gymnastics training and gymnastics medicine involves a lot of physical stretching and just grabbing the person the gymnast by the ankles and flipping their legs over this way and grabbing their hips and moving them this way. There's just a lot of that kind of um, manipulation of the body and apparently that helps because Larry Nasser did help a lot of people. So that's part of the desensitization, right? You, for uh, 45 minutes every other day, you're, this man is like just like throwing your body around in this room all by yourself. And so you become kind of desensitized.' You're like, okay, this is, this is my life now. And then he has to desensitize to maybe a little bit of genital touching. And, you know, it's like, okay, that's a little bit. And then, and then a little bit more the next time, a little bit more the next time. And then it's a slippery slope. And then eventually you're, um, you know, the abuser is doing whatever they set out to be doing. The research shows that about half of perpetrators of childhood sexual abuse will use this method of grooming, which I found to be surprising. I, I would have thought more would use grooming, but apparently, about half use grooming, and um, the other half don't. Uh, meaning the other half don't necessarily slowly manipulate the situation to get their victims um, into a compromising situation. So, um, I mean, I think I think there's always some level of grooming. It's just like Half of the time it's this slow methodical process and the other half it's not so slow, if that makes any sense. But the elements are still there. If you're not doing all the grooming things uh, as a perpetrator, the perpetrator's probably, you know, um, being sneaky about it and I don't know. Anyway, so the other thing that he counted on was that shame would keep the children quiet. And I'll get into more of this later in terms of what we, what we can do as a society, but he knew probably uh, in all likelihood more than anyone else did that kids and girls and families are so sexually repressed and shamed that that shame would override their self-preservation and their better judgment and would keep them quiet. This is a very important thing that we that we are responsible for. That's what I'm talking about, that until we end the shame of sex, we are going to continue enabling people like Larry Nassar, like Bill Cosby, like Harvey Weinstein to get away with these acts for decades. This is just the tip of the effing iceberg. There are Thousands, millions of these perpetrators around the world doing what these men have done uh, for decades. They're doing it right now, and, they've been, and many of these perpetrators have been doing it for decades. We think, oh, they get caught. I, I've seen law and order. These guys get caught. No, they do not. We are still in a situation where most of these people never get caught. And by the time they do get caught, even if they, in the rare case that they do, then it's after hundreds of victims. I can't remember the stat. I remember, it's hard to measure exactly, but I remember reading a stat once years ago that the average perpetrator abuses something like, I don't know, 300 people or 100 people before they get caught. And why is that? You know, how many times does someone have to stab someone before they get reported, uh, once? How many times does someone have to break into your house, show their face, and uh, you know, take your jewelry and walk out? How long, you know, let's say you're a serial jewelry thief who shows their face, like Harvey Weinstein showed his face. Everyone, everyone who was abused by Harvey Weinstein knew it was Harvey Weinstein. How long would it take for the serial jewelry sh- thief to be caught? Um, one time. As soon as the jewelry thief broke into your house and took your jewelry and showed your face and told you his name, uh, you would call the cops. Well, why is it so different when it comes to sexual harm? Because of us. Because we have set up a society that shames people into keeping quiet. I know that might sound funny, but that's absolutely the way that it is. And I'll get more into that later. And I'm guessing Larry Nasser absolutely knew that. He could count on us to make his job easier. Harvey Weinstein, Bill Cosby, they knew they could count on me and you to uphold a society that could allow them to continue to do this. And it's still happening now. And I can't emphasize that enough. The Larry Nasser's are not done. The Harvey Weinsteins are not done. They're still with us. You know, uh, do you think the stories have ended? Do you think we're never going to hear another story like this, uh, a Sandusky story? No, these. And again, these are just the famous ones. And these are just the ones that are famous, famous enough to get enough uh, political and and social movement around to actually bring down uh, there. You know, anyway. So, OK, so years and years go by for Larry Nasser. As he's grooming the victims and their families, he abuses victim after victim after victim, weeks, months, years, decades. Nothing happens. For some of these victims, he abuses them once. For some of the victims, he abuses them. He abuses them for years. Um. And often it was involved in this. Um, in this finger in the vagina thing, but he would also do things like a male victim said that Larry Nassar took him into a cellar and put acupuncture needles into his penis. That sounds interesting. Um, And, but there were many other ways that he would abuse people. Um, There's allegations that he just flat out raped people as well. So over the decades, I just want to point this out because another part of this narrative is that, oh, you know, the Me Too movement happened and the women finally came forward. and then And then when they came forward, we embraced them with open arms and said, thank you for having the bravery for coming forward. That is effing ridiculous. I don't know why I'm not swearing today, but I'm not. That's ridiculous. Over the decades, again, we're talking decades of time since... Uh, Bill Clinton was elected, going all the way back to early days of Bill Clinton. That's how long uh, until just a couple years ago. Okay, from early days of Bill Clinton to a couple years ago, week in, week out, this guy was abusing people, right, basically in front of people, and. The victims, most of them kept quiet. Many of them kept quiet again because our society is screwed up and our legal system is screwed up. But many of the victims told people because, of course, they did because he abused so many people. There's going to be a percentage of them that are going to come forward. And they did. They told their parents, they told coaches. They told their physicians. They told their psychologists. They told university administrators. They told USA Gymnastics administrators. They even told the police. And guess what happened? Guess what happened? In a nutshell, it was swept under the rug. For all the common dumb reasons. And again, this isn't 1963. This is 2012. This is you know, 2008, this is 2014, this isn't that long ago. Many people blame the victim, just like, oh, you must have been asking for it, what? Or, oh, you're just a liar, that's just kind of how you are, you're just kind of a liar. Or many just denied it, like, oh, no, I'm sure you have it wrong. Larry Nasser is a beautiful, wonderful man, uh, but that couldn't possibly be true, you must have misinterpreted it. You know, maybe his finger, you know, brushed up against your vagina on accident. You know, he's doing good work. Um, even though the girls are saying, no, 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 you don't understand. His finger was inside of me, okay? And no, 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 you, you know, that can't possibly be right. Um, now, many who even uh, believed what the kids uh, and didn't deny it They were scared to do anything about it because their society is so screwed up. They've seen other victims come forward and they've seen other, you know, other advocates of victims come forward and they've seen the abuse that everyone gives back to them. They've seen the lack of response. And so, you know, it it's not a irrational thing. If your kid comes, so let's just say you have a kid in gymnastics and your kid comes to you and says, I have a coach or a trainer, you know, a athletics trainer, a a physician who did what I think to be sexual abuse to me. As a parent, it's not necessarily irrational for you to say, I don't think it's best if we go to the police with this. Now, it should be okay to go to the police with it. But because our society is so stupid, because you and me participate willingly in a society that is so backward and so stupid and so laughable that supports ideas that promote uh, these notions of blaming the victim. You know, again, I'm just going to hammer on this a billion times. So if you had a kid who was stabbed by a doctor with a knife you know the doctor gets angry. I can't believe you didn't pay your bill. Picks up one of the scalpels and like stabs your kid in the in the thigh. If you just know, just think about it. you know that if you went to the cops and you said um, I'm, and you make a report, this physician stabbed my kid. You know that the cops would take it seriously. You know that the 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 press would see your kid as a victim they would see you as a good parent for making the report they would see the doctor as like what's wrong with that person now change the situation where your kid comes to you and says i think my doctor you know while he was doing all these different gymnastics things uh i think he put his finger inside me now let's say you go to the police do you think you're going to get the same response i don't think so Let's say you go to the press. Do you think you're going to get the same response? I don't think so. Do you think kids at school are going to treat your kid the same way as if your kid was a victim of a crime? I don't think so. I think the kids at school, because they're taught by us, because we teach the kids how to you know, react to things like this, I bet you anything half the kids at school are going to call your kid a slut. Do you know how stupid that is? And that's us. That's us. And that's why Larry Nasser got away with it for twenty five plus years so uh so yeah so so you know parents were told coaches were told physicians, psychologists, university administrators, gymnastics administrators, the police were notified um, but the main culprit here was the u s a gymnastics administration because they were the main sort of bosses and overseers of the situation uh, they were directly involved with the coaches and Larry Nasser and the parents and the kids and you know the Olympians and all this kind of stuff and they heard a lot about it and not only did they do nothing but they actually made efforts to completely cover it up similar to the Catholics right the Catholic Church you know initially tried to for many many years decades try to cover up the fact that some of their priests were sexually abusing kids Boy Scouts similar story that's coming out lately it, it's a very age-old story in our stupid society that that we made. Again, the USA Gymnastics administration—they're uh, not made up of a bunch of evil people. The Catholic Church administration—they're not made of, up, up, up of a bunch of evil people. The Boy Scouts administration—they're not—they're not a bunch of evil people. I know you'd like to think that because it makes things easier, but they're not. They're like you, and if you were in that situation, I'm going to make a guess. And I would bet that you would have acted the same way, not because you're stupid, but because we create a society that makes it so hard for people to act rationally in this situation because we shame sex so much and we don't react well to these kinds of situations. And I know that's hard to accept. I know it's like, no, 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 I wouldn't, I wouldn't have done that. If I was in the USA Gymnastics Administration and I heard, a, you know, multiple accounts of the physician abusing these kids, I would have absolutely done something. I don't think you would have, um, which I'll get into more later. I keep saying that. I keep getting into it, and then I'll say I'll get into it more later. But anyway. Um, Yeah, the USA Gymnastics Administration absolutely allowed Larry Nassar to continue abusing the children, mainly to save their reputation, but also to—and that's the part of it that I want to point out, is that why would it hurt the USA—why would the USA Gymnastics Association or whatever, you know, team—why would the Catholic Church— why would the Boy Scouts uh, not report something and worry about their reputation so much? That's on us. Because their reputation would go down. And the the Catholic Church has suffered massively in the wake, uh, you know, in terms of their reputation. Now, you could argue that half, at least half of that reputation loss is because they tried to cover it all up, right? But I bet you anything that even if they didn't cover it up, that they would have lost reputation. And that's stupid, because research, you know, I'm not an expert on this, but my recollection of the research was that in the Catholic Church, they have the same rate of uh, child molesters as they do in the regular population. Like if you just if you just take a, you know, a swath of the regular population, say, you know, one in every 10,000 people are child molesters or you know, something like that. I don't know the rate, but it's some kind of rate. Let's just say one in 10,000 people are child molesters. Well, in the Catholic Church, the same rate applied to priests. One in 10,000 priests were child molesters. I can't remember the rate, but it's a, it's, it's a similar rate. And so it's not like the, Ca- the Catholic Church had a lot of rapists in it. Uh, from my memory of the research, they just had the regular rate. So... You know, why couldn't they just come forward and say, like, well, we have the regular rate of child blessers that sort of slip through the cracks and we deal with them swiftly and strongly and, you know, openly. Um, Why couldn't they do that? Well, because they knew that they would lose points politically and, uh, you know, they would lose legitimacy and potentially money. By admitting something that is that is just a matter of course it's, just, it's we need to accept that you know one in one in ten thousand or one in a thousand people are child molesters and that's just that's just a fact of life and it doesn't mean that the catholic church is, doesn't mean that all priests are evil it just means that some are doing bad terrible things and so I hope I'm making it I hope I'm making sense <laughs> <laughs> sometimes I wonder, sometimes I feel like I need an Umberto here to be like, um, you're not making any sense. Anyway. So again, many, many years, 25 ish years of sexually abusing kids, many reports being made, nothing is being done. And my God, right? Okay. Skip forward to 2015. So four or five years ago. The allegations were finally beginning to break through to the level that it needed to be, and it was gaining traction. And finally, there's a consequence. The USA Gymnastics people, they cut ties with him after learning about the allegations becoming much stronger. Now, again, the USA Gymnastics had known about allegations before and, but in 2015, they finally started to realize that the cat was out of the bag and they weren't going to be able to cover it up. I mean, that's the way I see it. 2016, so I, th- I think he loses his job with the gymnastics team at that point. 2016, uh, uh, amidst all these allegations, you know, the press is starting to catch wind of this, starts to gain some speed, and he runs for a school board, of his local school situation, the Holt School Board. And he received 21% of the vote. And I find this to be just kind of interesting. It's like, was this always a dream of his? Or was this his way of trying to gain power in a situation that he thought he was losing power? Is he narcissistic or something? And he always needs to, because a lot of people, when they lose their job from accusations of sexual abuse, they would have, I don't know, moved to Mexico and tried to avoid the press or something, but he just, he goes full hog into the press. He's fired by Michigan State University. More women came forward. Um, Hundreds of people supported him through the accusations. Lots of women supported him. So as more women were coming forward and saying, me too, this is before the me too movement really, you know, caught wind. And people are saying, yeah, I, I, he did it to me too. Many, many people came forward and said, Larry Nasser would never do that. He's a wonderful person. Um, and people would attack the victims in the situation. So again, all you got to do is look back at that time and realize. What, so imagine if you weren't famous like Larry Nasser and and you're not famous like a gold medalist. Imagine you're just a regular person and there's just a, you know, it's like a babysitter or just a, you know, small town coach or um, your uncle, for example, or your aunt or your parents, for for that matter. And you come forward, well, you know, the first response often is no, 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 no. That person would never do it you're mistaken or you're out to get money or, you know, did you hear the story from Latoya Jackson? You know, she, da da da. There's always, there's always these excuses and that's why people don't come forward because they just know like, I'm not going to get, you know, it, it won't just me be, it won't just be me telling my story. It won't just be me saying, I'm finally ready to come forward and say this. That's not that's not going to be the narrative. The narrative is, you're a money grubber. You're a liar. You're, uh, you know, mentally ill or something. You know, there's always something, particularly for for girls. Uh, skipping forward to the end of 2016, the FBI. So at this point, um, in the media, it's like, well, maybe he did it. Maybe he didn't. And a lot of people around him are supporting him. And, of course, all the people who had sort of known about it are, you know, quietly keeping to themselves. Then in the end of 20, 2016, the FBI does an investigation, and they find 37,000 images of child pornography and have, on his computer or in his house or something. And they find a video of Lear Nasser molesting underage girls, multiple girls. So... Boom, this thing hits the press. And then the naysayers, guess what they did? Well, they shut up <laughs> because there's nothing more to say. And I just find it like, well, you know, uh, did you apologize? You know, maybe some did. 2017, the Me Too movement starts to get a major momentum. More victims are talking in the press and Larry Nassar's victims are, are starting to talk to the, pre- to the press and the police. Famous, famous gymnasts are coming forward publicly. Um, and again, I just want to point out, this is not them finally being brave, quote unquote. You know, they, they didn't, the, the Me Too movement didn't finally give them the, the platform to talk about this. Because as I said, many had already come forward. Many had already talked to the press. Um, They were brave from the start. They came forward in on mass because and we heard them and we noticed because we finally decided to take notice and the police were finally doing something about it. So that's the difference. Again, it's not that we need to help these people come forward because they often do What we need to do is we need to learn how to respond to these situations. So there's a lot of court battles and blah, 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 but long story short, he pleads guilty and he's going to spend the rest of his life in prison. Thank God. According to his lawyers, he was assaulted almost as soon as he was placed in the general population in prison. So he was moved to a new prison. His wife divorced him. She got full custody of their three children not that it really matters because he's in prison. His medical license was revoked for three years, which seems a little weird. It's like, why wouldn't it be revoked permanently? But having been part of license um, um, actions and sanctions, it's probably just the standard act that they take. You know, just revoke it for three years and maybe we'll review it or something. But anyway, 2018, beginning of 2018, Judge Rosemarie Ak- Akalina, Akalina, Uh, allowed his accusers to present extended victim impact statements. So, you know, sometimes in criminal proceedings, the judge or some situation will allow these public statements to be read by the victim to the perpetrator. And the judge allowed uh, the many accusers to publicly on camera, uh, you know, provide statements to Larry Nasser, and Larry Nasser just had to sit there and take it. And you might have seen the most famous clip from this was a father who, so they also allowed the family members to talk, and a father goes up to the stand, a big guy, and he says, uh, Judge, I respectfully ask for five minutes alone with Larry Nasser. Because I have a few things I'd like to do to him. And the judge kinda it goes, Oh, um I get uh uh-huh, I get your joke. No, I'm sorry, sir, I can't allow that. And then he says, Well, you know, again, I might be getting the sequence wrong, but he says something like, Well, how about one minute? Could I just have one minute alone with this monster? Because I have a few things I'd like to do to him. And the judge is like, No, I'm sorry. And then he says, Well, then I guess I'm just going to have to take matters into my own hand, Hands, and he just lunges for Larry Nasser. He just he just this big guy just just rushes Larry Nasser in the in the courtroom, wanting to tear him limb from from limb. And the uh, you know the law officials or the court um, you know law enforcers jump on the father. And it's, it's a very heartbreaking scene because you feel for the man's pain and his anger and he knew he wasn't going to get to Larry. You know, he, he knew that there's, you know, he's like, maybe I'll get a punch in or something, but it's not going to, I'm not going to, you know, be able to do what I really want to him. And cause he didn't have a weapon or anything. And he's on the floor being cuffed and he's like, he says something like, you know, what am I supposed to do or something and I think one of the law enforcement guys is just like, I get it, I get it, I understand your pain but you gotta stop. And everyone in the courtroom is crying and, you know, scared and shocked and it's just, it's just a visceral example of the emotions that the victims and the family are going through. I mean, that's, Something I haven't perhaps emphasized yet, which is the the lifetime of effects that will, you know, befall these individuals and their families. That it's not over for the victims and the families. For the rest of their lives, they will suffer in all likelihood. That's just how trauma is. It hurts. It hurts your soul, it hurts your spirit, it hurts your psyche and it it just it just keeps coming back and i know a lot of you listening out there have been victimized and traumatized in a way all of us have to some degree and it comes back and it hurts and you you know you feel it again you feel the helplessness you feel the pain you feel the distrust you feel the disappointment you feel the terror and you can recover you could get treatment you could grieve, but the pain never really goes away, and the parents too, you know, for for everyone, and that's that's the problem that we as a society created a situation that allowed Larry Nasser to do these things to people and create a lifetime of stress and pain and anger and years of therapy and struggle and self-hatred and suicide thoughts. I mean, that's one of the most tragic things about being victimized is you're made to feel like such dirt by the perpetrator that you begin to believe it and then you contemplate ending your life because you believe that you don't really deserve to be on the planet. And that is that's on us, on everyone. It's, It's not a matter of you know, finding the monsters and you know detecting them with superheroes who can see through walls and detect thoughts. It's not a matter of you know police officers hitting the streets and you know looking under garbage cans. It's not how we do this. How we do this is through our society, which again I'll get into later. So the judge allowed everyone to talk um, and. 88 people were scheduled to speak. So, 88, 88 I mean, usually in these victim statements in, in court, it's usually like one or two people. 88 people signed up and said, I want to say something to Larry Nasser on the record. But double that ended up speaking. 156 actually ended up speaking. And I, I commend the judge for allowing this. She was quite at a, quite a strong presence in that courtroom. She was, um, I liked her sternness. she was very stern um, with Larry Nasser, and um I, you know I just God bless her so after this is all said and done, he apologizes. Larry Nasser apologizes. He said that the impact his victim statements had on him quote unquote pales in comparison to the suffering he inflicted on them, so he's saying, you know the amount of suffering that i did to those people to those children is so great but you know and you know the, the the negative effect of on me that these statements have you know it just pales in comparison to the effect that i've had on them you know it seems like oh and when i saw that and i and his face you know he seems cuz the camera goes to his face during these statements and He's he's crying. He's legit tearing up. Cry. He's sobbing at times. You know, looking straight into their eyes. You know, you'll see some of these victim statements. The perpetrator will sit on a stand and they'll they'll look at the floor. They'll kind of roll their eyes. They'll sigh. They'll react like that. But Larry Nasser from the clips I saw, would be, was looking straight into the eyes as the victims were talking, and he just has this face of remorse a face of compassion and a face of sadness. And you're thinking, "Oh, maybe this guy was compulsive and he I mean, he's clearly it's clearly something's wrong with him, but maybe, you know, he was really suffering." But then he writes this letter that the judge ends up reading in court. <laughs> so I'm going to quote Larry Nasser here so i so larry nasser i don't think ever intended on this on this letter being known to the public i think he just thought the letter would be read by the judge or some other legal people but anyway the judge actually reads this to the crowd is like i just i want everyone to know larry nasser so in this um it says larry nasser's writing i was a good doctor because my treatments worked And those patients that are now speaking out were the same ones that praised and came back over and over and referred family and friends to see me. The media convinced them that everything I did was wrong and bad. You know, fake media, you know, CNN, all that kind of stuff. The media convinced them that everything I did was wrong and bad. They feel I broke their trust. Let's just look at that. They feel I broke their trust. They feel I broke their trust. You know, I just love when people say that, like, um, I know that you feel that I lied to you. <laughs> I know that you feel I did something wrong, but you know, I didn't really. It's like, no, you did break their trust. You asshole. So they feel I broke their trust. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Uh, What? I mean, if you wrote if you know um, the South Park boys wrote a uh, a satire of Larry Nasser, they would not be so bold as to make such a such a silly statement from somebody. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. He wrote that. The media convinced them that everything I did was wrong and bad. They feel I broke their trust. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Wow. So so is misogyny in there as well? Sounds like it. In addition, with the federal case, my medical treatments with the Olympic National Gymnastics were discussed as part of the plea. Um. The FBI investigated them in 2015 and found nothing substantial because it was medical. So he keeps saying in this letter that it wasn't a criminal act, it was medical. I think what he's trying to say is, okay, maybe I didn't maybe I did the wrong medical treatment. But it wasn't a crime, it was just the wrong medical treatment. You I think his argument is you don't you don't prosecute a gynecologist for doing the wrong treatment um, inside a woman's vagina, right? You know, if a man does the wrong treatment in, while doing a exam inside a woman's vagina, you don't call that a crime. You don't call that sexual abuse. You just call that medical, you know, a medical disagreement on what you're supposed to be doing. I think that's the argument he's making. So he's claiming, and he did claim, that when you do these quote-unquote pelvic manipulations where you're actually like, Manipulating someone's pelvic pelvis, which I'm, I think is a real thing for um, gymnastics doctors. He was claiming that putting a finger inside the vagina is like part of the treatment <laughs> and he actually said that in this other interview but anyway, so he says the FBI investigated my treatments in 2015 and found nothing substantial because it was medical. Now they're seeking the media attention and financial reward. So he's claiming that the, the law, the authorities, are merely seeking medical attention and financial reward. Again, so in in court, he is crying. He's looking in the eyes of the victims. He's sad. He's, I, I'm so sorry for the pain I caused you. And then he comes around and says, the media has convinced these women that everything I did was wrong and bad. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. This is a this is a classic example of a psychopath. So let's get into psychopathy here. Now, again, I can't really assess him because I don't know him. And everything I'm about to say is based on what's on the Internet. So... I really just don't know. And there's just not a lot of information about his personal life and his childhood. So this, this is a discussion for education purposes only to help us understand the, cons, the construct of psychopathy, not to know whether or not Larry Nasser is a psychopath. Having said that, so there are 20 items on the hair uh, measure, which is the main measure for psychopathy. Number one, pathological lying. You know, did he Was he a pathological liar? Um, he definitely lied for sure, but it wasn't pathological. There's no evidence of that anyway. Path, I always remind people, pathological lying is, um, and that's my term, pathological lying, is that people will lie about anything all the time, like things that don't make any sense. And they seem to always be on the take. Like if they're at a job and they only work, say, four hours, they just can't help it. They have to say, no, I worked for 12 hours. And the boss is like, um, no, you're, I think you only worked for four. Oh, well, maybe I only worked for four. There's just this knee-jerk reaction to lie that, that s- sort of classic psychopaths will do. Number two, glib and superficial charm. So this is being very surface charming, meaning you're charming, but you, you're not. there's no substance behind it. You're, you're a trickster charmer person. This is hard to say, uh, but seemingly like in court when he's crying in the, for the cameras, but then behind closed doors, he's writing this letter that says, hell hath no fury like a woman scorn. Um, then, you know, that's, that's, I think, pretty strong evidence of superficial charm. Also, he would groom the families with a ton of charm, and then he would abuse people. Number three, cunning and manipulative. Yes, clearly he was extremely cunning and extremely manipulative. I mean, the amount of effort that he would have to go through to abuse hundreds of, of kids and young adults is tremendous. I mean, the amount of um, little decisions and little manipulations that he would have to do is, is just astounding. Number four, grandiose sense of self. Baby, the only evidence i could really find was that of the letter he seems to exhibit this this sense of himself like i'm an awesome doctor everyone loves me i don't understand why this is happening so you know hard to say because there's not really that much data number 5 need for simula- for stimulation so someone that needs to be drunk or high or having sex or jumping out of an airplane or um, they just need stimulation. They, they, they get bored really easily. It's hard to say. Um, there's not a lot of information for that. Number six, callous and lack of empathy. Absolutely. Clearly he is callous and he has a lack of empathy. 25 plus years of abusing young people as young as five years old, no remorse seemingly. And that letter just kind of, tips it off. Number seven, lack of remorse or guilt. Absolutely. Uh, Number eight, failure to accept responsibility. Absolutely. That letter typifies that. Number nine, shallow emotional response. Mm, Not enough data. Parasitic lifestyle. No. Poor behavioral controls. Mm, You could argue maybe, but there's just not enough data. Irresponsibility. No, there's no evidence on the internet anyway that he was irresponsible in the classic psychopathic sense. Thirteen, impulsivity. Maybe you could argue that his, his uh, sexual abuse was impulsive. It's possible. You'd have to talk with him about this, but there's no real evidence that he has the classic psychopathic impulsivity where, you know, the classic psychopath will spend their money compulsively. They'll get divorced impulsively. They'll quit their job impulsively. They'll Move to another city impulsively. They'll um, reach out and punch people compuls- impulsively. Fourteen, many short-term mar- marital relationships. No. Fifteen, sexual promiscuity. No evidence on the internet. You know, you could argue maybe. Sixteen, early behavioral problems. I didn't hear about any. No evidence on the internet that it could be there. Seventeen, lack of realistic long-term goals. No evidence on the internet of that. 18, juvenile delinquency, no evidence of that on the internet. 19, revocation of conditional release, uh, no. 20, criminal versatility, and no evidence of that on, on the internet. So he has all the classic main traits of a psychopath that I would point out. He has a lack of remorse. He's manipulative and superficially charming. He has no empathy. It's pretty clear he doesn't really care about the victim's. And he is easy, it's easy for him, and he's sort of driven by exploitation of other people, particularly people who are easily manipulated, like young children. Um, but he doesn't have the classic traits, like lots of different crimes um, since he was a teenager, uh, you know, lots of crimes since he was a teenager, in and out of prison, many short-term romantic relationships, being sort of a con artist, um, there's, there's not that. The classic psychopaths are, are were studied by Hare, and they're 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 a very particular kind of thing. And so I th- you know I think he had some of the classic traits of psychopathy, but he doesn't really fit the the Hare conceptualization fully. Now, well, let's look at antisocial personality disorder. Uh, so, does he have a pattern of disregard for others occurring since the teen years? Absolutely. So that's the main thing we're looking for is, you know, does someone have a pattern of disregard for other people occurring for many years, going back to when they were a teenager and maybe beyond that? Absolutely. Now we're looking for three or more of the following. Not conforming to social norms. Mm, not really. He was uh, seemingly conforming in, you know, all the, all, a lot of ways. Um, pathological lying. Again, again, this is like looking uh looking for whether or not he used aliases and whether or not he conned people out of their money and their retirement fund or something. No, doesn't, there's no evidence anyway. Impulsivity again, not really. Maybe if we understood his process a little better, but there's no clear evidence of that irritability. I didn't hear any reports. In fact, I heard the opposite. He was very kind, reckless disregard for the safety of self and others. Um, sort of, I mean, that's the sort of thing that any social personality sort of the DSM is getting at when they're talking about reckless disregard for safety of self and others is like, is like jumping off of a roof when you're 13 years old, and not really having a plan for how you're going to land, or loving to, um, uh, you know, ride motorcycles fast. Um, like one, uh, I'll tell you the story. So I, I grew up with someone that was like this. And one time, how specific should I get? Uh, I didn't like him very much, actually. My friends liked him, but I was was always like, I don't, in fact, there was a time when I wanted to completely write him out of our lives. And some of my other friends were like, I don't know how you can be so harsh, but this guy, he, I didn't know it at the time because I was in college and didn't know about such things. But looking back, he absolutely was a psychopath. He would manipulate people and he would do dangerous things. He would do things like, um, without going into specifics, but he would do dangerous things with his car. And not only put himself in danger, but he'd put other people in danger. And sometimes he actually physically injured our some of our our friends and some of the, the sort of jackass stuntery that he would do. Um, and I just remember thinking like, why do you keep doing these things that are potentially, you're going to kill someone, including yourself? Like, just stop it! <laughs> like it's not funny. He would do it because he thought it was funny, and it was like it's not funny. I, I'm seriously worried about you and anyone being around you because I feel like you're going to kill someone. That's you know the reckless disregard for safety and self and others. That's pretty classic to antisocial personality disorder. Um, lack of responsibility, meaning that it's hard for someone to hold a job. No, we don't really see that. And lack of remorse. Absolutely. We absolutely see a lack of remorse. So we really don't see, of all the different criteria for antisocial personality, we really only see one of the main symptoms being endorsed here, which is lack of remorse. So he doesn't really meet the criteria for antisocial personality disorder. And that's something I want to point out, is that a lot of times with these public figures, people want to say, oh, clearly a psychopath or you know, antisocial personality disorder, or even they'll say sociopath, which isn't a term I recommend people using because it doesn't have a clear definition. And when we actually look at these people and look at the criteria, we find that, no, these people actually don't fit. You know, the people who fit the classic antisocial personality disorder traits and the classic psychopathy traits, they're not very interesting people because they're so out of control and they land themselves in prison very quickly. So, these kinds of people like larry nasser who actually are responsible who actually are likable who actually aren't particularly irritable or impulsive who who actually don't lie pathologically like constantly about things that don't really matter you know these kinds of people are the people who actually get away with it more easily and So labeling them as a psychopath or any social personality disorder isn't very responsible. Plus, if you don't know what you're talking about, then don't use the terms, please. But what does he qualify for, if anything? Well, pedophilic disorder. So it has two criteria that are pretty simple here. Uh, Recurrent, intense, sexual, arousing fantasies, urges, or behaviors involving sexual activity with a child. Yes, absolutely, right? And two, has he acted on those urges? Yes. Okay. Well, he qualifies for pe- pedophilic disorder. He's a pretty classic pedophile. And again, we like to throw around the psychopathy or the sociopathy labels. And, you know, it's fine. I, I, I would, it, it's interesting on some level to really point out his lack of remorse. And certainly many pedophiles are not psychopaths, you know, do not have psychopathic traits. In fact, one person who is attracted to kids has actually um, uh, reached out to me recently He, he said that he is uh, he or she i can't remember uh, but they are attracted to kids, but they don't act on it, and they know how to um, manage their urges and so even though inside they have these urges and they don't know where they came from, they manage them and they manage not to actually harm people so many People who have, uh, you know, proclivities in that direction, they don't act. You know, some people don't act on it. And uh, so, yeah. But when you match up a pedophile with traits of psychopathy and antisocial, then they, you know, don't have a lot of reasons to manage their urges. Like the person who contacted me in all likelihood doesn't have any psychopathic traits and therefore, when they have urges, they think, well, but I don't want to hurt anybody. You know, it's similar to when you are thinking about wanting to punch someone in the face. You know, we all get urges to do bad things, uh, you know, however um, normal they are or, or deviant they are. And, you know, for, for most of us, we can manage not to do them. It's the people who actually don't care about other people's feelings and act on it anyway because they just don't care. Um, so here's the question, though. After looking at all the data, which is just stuff on the Internet, there's this question that comes up of, was he, is his personality such that he doesn't have remorse for the things that he did? Or is this lack of remorse developed as a part of pedophilia? Because it could be both, and I think it's important to, to tease out. So some people are seemingly either born or they develop quite early this lack of capacity for empathy and this lack of remorse for hurting other people's feelings. They just don't seem to really care. Now, for some of these people, you could say they they just don't have that mechanism in their psyche, but some others, they have a very much compromised or a a limited access to that part of them that cares about other people. And I won't go into the details on that, but I hope you get the picture on that. But for other people, uh, like someone, so imagine you're 15 years old, or let's say you're 20 years old. And you realize that you are not attracted to women your own age. So you're a 25 year, you're a 20 year old person and you're a man and you're attracted to girls. You're attracted to young girls and you are thinking, well, I don't like having sex with women my own age. That's you know, I, I don't get turned on at all by it. Not at all. Not in the least. It's completely boring, blah, blah, blah. Uh, well, How do I deal with this? Now, if that person had treatment and support, they might actually take the road that the person who emailed me did and and decide not to abuse people. But without support, without ability to talk with anyone, you might just be like, well, I'll just I'll deal with it another time. You know, I'll suppress this. I'll figure something out later. Well, over time, you find yourself, you know, the, the person finds themselves around kids, and they just start, you know, they get this urge, and they, like, act on little bits. Well, it's just a little, you know, I'm just hanging out with a kid. I, I just want to touch her hand. That's all I want to do. And so you just kind of reach out, touch the hand. And it's like, oh, that felt so good, you know. Because these pedophiles, they feel a romantic connection often with these individuals. It's not necessarily just this... Um, you know, um, exploitation act. You know, they, they feel like some of these people, they feel like there was a connection. There was like a, a real romance going on between the people. And so they, they do a little bit of it. And so say, you know, they reach out, they do the hand and then maybe they go a little bit further and there's some actual genital touching or something. Well, the guy goes home again. He's 20 years old. He has no one to talk to. And he's trying to figure out like, Oh my God, what did I do? Was that bad? I mean, but I don't know. She didn't seem to hate it. She she didn't scream. You know, maybe maybe she likes it. Maybe, maybe it's okay. And then you just sort of go down that slippery slope. And by the end of the road, you've completely convinced yourself that it's fine and that nothing's wrong and that maybe you even believe you're making them tougher. You know, some, some people say, this. well, I was making her tougher. And it sounds ridiculous because it is, but it's not. Unusual for people to develop these denial mechanisms while they're in a tight spot and they don't know how to get out of it. Again, if we had proper treatment in our society and awareness, we would be able to help this fella with his urges so that he could actually have a a satisfactory romantic life without having to harm people, meaning that we could help him sort of direct his sexuality towards older people and we could support him and help him keep his perspective straight. Um, In the same way that when someone's trying to quit heroin, they go to group therapy or they go to NA and they need other people to be like, um, you know, no, a little bit of heroin is not okay for you. You have to keep that in mind. And the, the person who was addicted will say, yeah, you're right. I, I don't know where I got that in my head. Well, for someone who's attracted to kids, they need that support system. They need, you know, No, you hanging out next to the playground is not innocent. You need to not be doing that. And the pedophile would say, yeah, you're right. I need to not do that. It's It's just a slippery slope. I'm just convincing myself everything's fine. Without that check-in, you go down the road of denial. And before you know it, you're a heroin addict saying, well, it's just heroin, you know, it's just opioids. People get prescribed Percocet all the time, you know. People, when you have your wisdom teeth pulled out, you get, you get prescribed an opioid. Well, I'm just, I'm just doing the same thing. It's not, it's not the big of a deal. Or, hey, I'm just drinking beer. Well, you're drinking 12 beers a day. Well, it's just beer. It's not, you know, I, I don't drink any wine or any hard alcohol anymore. I've completely stopped. Or, you know, I'm, I'm just smoking light cigarettes now. Or, um, you know, I, I only use cocaine on the weekends or, you know, whatever people say. Now, again, there's something wrong with using substances, but there, I hope you get my point that it, we all understand the notion that we go into denial. Well, maybe something that's more universal is, um, like, let's say you fall out of practice with your exercise routine and you're just like, well, you know, I'm eating right or well, you know, I feel healthy. Or well, you know, um, I'm young, or something. You know, so you, you make up these excuses because you're trying to deal with something that's difficult to accept. And for some of these pedophiles who have actual remorse and empathy for other people, they will actually develop these denials to cope with the situation. And and Larry Nasser, after 30 years of doing this, he might have been one of those people who actually had the capacity for empathy for a lot of different areas, and that's why people loved him so much. But he turned off a particular, or he denied a certain perspective that, you know, he convinced himself of a particular perspective that made it so that he didn't have to face the fact that he knew he was actually harming other human beings. That's possible. It's also possible he had no remorse. (laughs) And underneath the layers, there's no empathy. It's just hard to say. Uh, I can't really tell from the data because I've, I've seen both presentations in real life and they're not really distinguishable. Um, all right. So skipping forward to July, 2018, over a hundred survivors of his abuse appeared on stage together to receive the Arthur Ashe award for courage at the 2018 ESPY awards. So this is amazing, right? So these are all athletes, right? So they're at the SP awards and Uh, It's just a beautiful thing. 140 survivors step forward onto the stage and they all receive the Arthur Ashe Award for Courage. It's just, it's a beautiful moment, I think. And um, I'm really happy that the ESPYs did that. And he also tried to get a new sentencing hearing because he thought that the judge was biased. So he came forward and said, you know, I think the judge is being biased against me. Um, I I think I don't deserve that many... Uh, years in prison, and uh, he, his request was denied. Many others have, accused, have been accused of wrongdoing as well, not just Larry Nasser, but more than 150 federal and state lawsuits have been filed against him, Michigan State University, the U.S. Olympic Committee, USA Gymnastics, and the Twist Stars Gymnastics Club. Um, and I think that these lawsuits are very strong. Uh, It's particularly the USA gymnastics. These people knew about what was happening. They were uh, active in actually suppress. You know, they they would uh, do payouts and make people sign non disclosure agreements, similar to Donald Trump or similar to Harvey Weinstein. You know, this is the power of the rich. The rich get to make you shut up. Uh, because it's just so enticing. You know, if you're a victim and you're thinking, well, I've already tried to get people to hear me. No one's hearing me. And I'm probably just going to get blamed by society. No one no one's going to hear me. And these lawyers are coming forward and they're they're going to pay me like two million dollars and and they're and they're and but all they're saying is it's like I just can't talk about it anymore. And honestly, I don't want to talk about it anymore because it's painful to talk about. Well, okay, fine. I'll take the two million bucks. I'll sign the non-disclosure agreement. And this is this has got to be illegal. You cannot be a rich person and pay someone to not talk about a crime that that you committed. That that is that can't be okay. Poor people don't have that uh, right. Don't have that privilege right Poor i for example if i committed a crime i don't have enough money to pay someone to not you know talk about it i, I just can't do that so how is that fair it's just ugh, you know it's another thing that we need to be changing the entire 18 member board of usa gymnastics resigned the michigan state university president also resigned Also, the Michigan State University Director of Athletics and other people resigned. Michigan State University agreed to pay half a billion dollars to the 332 alleged victims. Uh, According to the Internet, this is the largest amount of money in history settled by a university for a sexual abuse case. Half a billion dollars. I mean, that's got to hurt the university, right? Um. Others are facing charges, actual criminal charges, like the woman who was president of Michigan State University, the woman who was a coach who uh, they they show this in the HBO documentary that she she heard stories from the victims and did nothing, and the USA gymnastics president and i I applaud these charges by the attorney general because the you know if you Go if you say you're in high school, you're 16 years old and you're a boy and you have two friends and your two friends are like, hey, let's go jump that kid. OK, so the three of you go in and you're like, eh, I don't really want to go jump that kid. Um, you know, do we have to? And your two friends are like, yeah, we got to jump the kid. And you're just like, well, I'm not going to participate. You know, I'm just I, I don't want to get involved. And then your two friends proceed to jump. Proceed to jump this other kid. They take a laptop from his backpack. They walk off, and you're just like, um, you know, I'm just not involved. I didn't. I, I didn't do anything. I was just. I was just an innocent bystander. According to the law, you are culpable for that crime, and you will you will be prosecuted, and you will be sentenced because you didn't do anything. You could have walked away. You could have been like, I'm not only part of this, I'm I'm walking away. Uh, You also obviously could have stopped. You could have tried to do something to stop it. So the fact that these victims went to the coach, the woman coach, and said, you know, Larry Nasser is sexually abusing me, and you do nothing, that is the same thing to me. For you to do nothing, to just stand by and do nothing. Now, maybe you didn't know what to do. But did you consult with anybody? Did you try to do something? No, you did everything you could to suppress it and you should fry. Absolutely you should fry. The state of Michigan passed mandated reporting laws. I'm surprised it wasn't already a law for coaches and this sort of thing. Basically the same, you know, for me, for example, I'm a mandated reporter and the therapists in Michigan are as well. And so they basically extended that mandated reporting law to I'm guessing coaches and other kinds of people. Um, This helps, but, you know, uh, I fear many people will continue not to report it because of our society. And then 2019, uh, this year, HBO documentary At the Heart of Gold is called a documentary. It's At the Heart of Gold, it's really good. Highly recommend. Okay, so how did this happen? You know, let's get into you know, looking at this analytically, how did this happen? How could he get away with this for so long for 25 plus years? And I've already been talking about this already, but I just want to get into it in a little bit more detail. I want to address the people out there and say, you know, it couldn't happen to me. If I got abused, I would have made the report. Or if I was the coach, I would have, I would have done the right thing. Or, if I was one of the parents who heard about it, I would have done the right thing. If I was a police officer, I would have done the right thing. So I want you to, I'm going to do a little um, uh, experiment here. So take a second to recall all the times that you've been sexually harassed or harmed. Just take a second to think about that. Think about all the times that you've been sexually harassed by someone Or sexually harmed. Going back to when you were born, all the times. Every time someone said something nasty to you that was inappropriate, every time someone touched you, every time that someone actually sexually assaulted you or raped you, think just just you know, within reason, think about you know the the tagline of all these different moments. Now also think about all the times you've heard about a friend telling you about sexual harm happening to them, whether it was their boss at work or um, a criminal in an alleyway or a friend at a party or a date rape situation. Think about all the times someone socially or professionally has told you about this. Now in all likelihood you have come up with dozens of incidents. Um, for most of us, we have either experienced or heard and or heard of hundreds of these stories. Um, sometimes we don't recognize it as such, but uh, it is. And if you're enlightened and you listen to this podcast, I'm guessing that um, you can think of things pretty quickly. Okay, now, think about how many times did you report these incidents? How many times? Now, maybe you're one of the rare people that reported it every single time. I doubt any of you are actually listening right now because it's so rare In all likelihood you either only made reports for some or you never made a single report for any of them. Now I'm not saying there's something wrong with you. What I'm saying is there's something wrong with society and our legal system that you knew full well of. And that's why you didn't report it again. Think about all the times that, um, you know, someone, like last night, just let me, I'll just tell a story. I'm in my house and I'm playing a video game and I hear fireworks going off outside. And I'm thinking, is there some kind of like celebration going on? And I I think, well, you know, whatever. And it's like, I don't know, one in the morning or something. And then a little bit later, I hear more fireworks. And I'm thinking, what's going on? And then I hear like loud yelling or something. And so I go outside on my suburban street. And I see this, um, this uh, Jeep is, is just kind of like driving slowly up and down our street, shooting fireworks off and people are yelling at them to shut up. And, and well, what did I do? Well, I instantly called the cops because <laughs> I'm like, well, either I'm going to go out there and I'm going to get in a fight with this guy, or I should just call the cops, you know, because the guy's probably drunk or I don't know what's going on. So I call the cops. Call nine one one. Boom, cops come out. They deal with him. Uh, incidentally, just a side note. Um, so I'm thinking, oh, this guy's fried because the cops got here in time. It took cops forever to get here. It took them like a, an hour or something. But they finally get here, and it wasn't just everyone on my block was calling because this guy was just going up and down. He's got this loud jeep. He's lighting fireworks. He's screaming. He has a broken window. It's just like, what's going on? Anyway, a police officer shows up. And um, I'm thinking, well, this guy's fried. I mean, he's got to be drunk or something. Well, I look outside, and what's happened was before the cop, because it took so long for the police officer to get here, the guy in the Jeep pulls over and parks on the curb and just and turns off his car. Police officer shows up, sees that he's drunk. Know, he knows he's got to be the guy that's lighting off fireworks. He has a description of him and the vehicle. He looks in the car, the police officer looks in the car, sees an open bottle of beer in the car, open bottle <laughs> in the car. Brilliant, right? But because the car isn't moving and because it could be argued that he was, he only started drinking after the car was stopped, it, he can't arrest him for drunk driving. He's just innocently drinking a beer in his car that stopped <laughs> apparently. And so the police officer did nothing. They just had this long chat, I guess, trying to get the kid to, to slip up. Anyway, my point is, is that when those kinds of things happen, the entire neighborhood instantly calls the cops. Now, let's, let's change the situation. Let's say that your kid tells you that a, another kid at school inappropriately touched your kid. Would you call the cops? Would you call the teacher? What would you do? Now, some people would; many people would not. Many people are like, eh, I don't want to create any waves here. And if you did make a report, would it get uh, dealt with well? Some would; many would not. Or let's take a reverse situation. Let's say you think that your kid uh, was sexually, you know, touching another kid on the playground. Let's say you saw your kid doing something to another kid on the playground that you thought was like, Whoa, what was that? Would you call the authorities? Would you instantly take your kid to therapy or would you sweep it under the rug? You know, now let's take another situation. Let's say your kid takes a huge rock, like the size of a softball and smashes it over another kid's head. Well, how fast are you going to react to that? Well, you're going to react very fast. How fast would the other parents react against your kid? Very fast. There's something about sexual things that we just don't do a lot about. And I know you want to believe that you're going to do a lot of things for it. And maybe you're sort of more enlightened because you listen to this podcast. You're the sort of person that, you know, would do things. But a lot of people don't. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Not because they're dumb. You know, German Germans weren't dumb during World War II. They were embedded in a society that thinks a particular way that produces certain kinds of symptoms. So, um, yeah. Okay, going down my notes here. All right. So, Larry was Larry Nasser was very much protected. Um, there was all these people around him that protected him, and the people around him protected him because society was such that they didn't feel like they had any recourse. Um, he was trusted. People loved him. They didn't want to make waves. They didn't want to um, taint the image of USA Gymnastics. They didn't want to detract from the story of Simone Biles winning um, the gold, right? They didn't want to uh, make the Olympics look like there's a dark underbelly. They didn't want their university to look bad. They didn't want their administration to look bad. And another fact I haven't really talked about yet is that children are second-class citizens in our society. Ageism is a thing, people. And we do not consider children to be real citizens. And when they say something, we don't really listen. And I've seen this happen over and over and over again. I'll never forget when I was working at this one high school, I was a therapist, but I was was a therapist working at a high school. And I had a lot of opportunity to hang out with a lot of the kids and the teachers and everyone. And one of the things that I saw emerge was that some of the kids were clearly labeled as like the bad kids, even though they weren't even that bad. I mean, maybe they were a dick sometimes, but for the most part, they were just sort of extroverted. And I found that the teachers, because they had labeled this kid as like one of the bad kids, when that kid had something smart to say or was asserting themselves in a mature way, the teachers would just sort of roll their eyes at him. And I would think, "What are you? what's happening here? Because different societies create this situation where it just makes it easier to just deny. And it's so much easier just to say kids don't know what they're talking about. It's just so much easier to say, like, ah, you know, kids make up stuff. Or, ah, you know, kid they'll get over it or something. And that's not okay. Kids aren't second-class citizens. They should be treated well. And I, and I know that sounds so funny. It's like, shouldn't kids be – it's like, why do we have to say that, <laughs> you know? Getting off track a little bit, one of the points I actually want to point out is that a lot of the perpetrators are women. And so in our society, we – for – Uh, People to come forward and talk about their male perpetrators is really tough. Uh, Most people don't report it at all. But if your perpetrator was a woman, you are, I don't know, a hundred times, I don't know the statistics, but you're probably like a hundred times less likely to come forward and say that you were abused because you think our society reacts bad when people come forward talking about the abuse that they've been through if, if there's a male perpetrator, well, Think about how bad our society reacts when there's a female perpetrator, particularly if the female perpetrator is quote-unquote good-looking. All you got to do is think about cases where there's a teacher and uh, you know it's a hot woman teacher who had sex with a 15-year-old boy. Well, there's a lot of people going, oh, man, I wish I was that boy, or if I was that boy, I'd be high-fiving my friends. No, you would not be. That 15-year-old boy is going to have problems. There's not a lot of good that comes out of that. In the same way that if we were to say a 15-year-old girl having had sex with a hot man teacher would have problems as well. Now, there's variations, of course, but the point is is that studies show that about 20% of perpetrators are women. One in five. How many movies or stories or you know news reports or case studies do we have of female perpetrators of sexual abuse? I bet you, you can't even picture it in your mind, many of you. Now, many of you can, because many of you have had female perpetrators. But when I say a sexual predator, do you think of a man? Well, that's not okay. We need to, you know, if I said, you know, physician or lawyer do you think of a man you shouldn't be you should be thinking well it could be anybody right well so can a sexual predator that can be anybody and we that's that's another problem we have because for all those people who are abused by the 20 percent of perpetrators who are women those people really aren't coming forward those people really feel shameful about what happened to them so That's just another sort of sidetrack here. All right. What do we need to change? Well, the first thing we need to change is our lack of awareness. We need to raise awareness. And I know that's a very cliched thing to say, but it is very, very true. Uh, People, when Larry Nasser was being accused, almost everyone was like, oh, but he's so nice. That should not be the first thing that runs to your head is, oh, he's so nice. That is not a factor, (laughs) many sexual predators are nice many sexual predators are really nice kind individuals or they're just normal or something you know sexual predators are not monsters lurking in the shadows they they're just like everyone else and they have this problem so the fact that anyone after would say like but he's so nice he can't be that means we have a problem with lack of awareness lack of education lack of understanding we need to educate people we're not doing it enough let me give an example of what we're not doing enough in school from K to twelve. How many days are spent on math and English and science and history? How many assignments? How many classes are dedicated to math, English, science, history, uh, PE, art, these kinds of things? How many? How many days? How much time does your kid spend on the subject? Just you know, years and years and years of it, right? Okay, fine. How many days are spent on preventing sexual abuse? How many days are spent educating kids about how to stop this sort of thing from happening? How many days are spent on positive sexuality? How many days are spent on helping young people not feel ashamed of themselves for thinking sexual thoughts? How many days are spent helping kids understand how to react to other people when other people come forward with? allegations like this? How many days are spent on helping people not bully other people for any reason, let alone sexually? How many days? I'm going to say some at best, many places, none. What's wrong with us? Why do we do this to ourselves? This is us. It's not some alien creature that comes down and dictates how we're going to teach our kids. This is our policies. This is our practice. And you might not like it. You might be like, well, yeah, I don't really like it like that. Well, what are you doing about it? What are you doing? Are you actually going to the school board and saying, you got to change this and I'm not going to stand for this anymore. Are you actually doing something? Now, I don't want to shame you. (laughs) I like you. You're listening to the podcast, but we got to do something. You know, are you going to the teachers? Are you advocating for this sort of thing? If you are a teacher, are you going to your administration? Are you creating, uh, you know, sections of your curriculum on this? If you're a history teacher, are how many cases of sexual abuse, famous cases in history, are you going to talk about in your class? And are you going to get the support of the administration? Are you going to get the support of the parents? If you're a parent and you go to a PTA meeting and one of the parents stands up and says, I don't want kids talking about sex. Are you going to stand up too and say, uh, "You know, I understand that you're a little skittish and a little afraid, but we need to talk about sex with our kids. And if we don't, they're going to get hurt. Lots of bad things happen when we don't talk to our kids about sex. And, it, and I'm not talking about STIs. That's fine. You can talk to your kids about STIs. What you need to be talking to your kids about is what sex is like, how one can live a sexual life, how one can respect one's body, how one can protect themselves from other people, how one participates in sexual shaming, which, which contributes to the overall suppression of people coming forward. How are you going to stand up in PTA meetings and are you going to talk back? Are you if you're a politician who you know, is on city council, are you going to raise your hand and say, I'm going to add something to the agenda? If you work for an organization that works with kids, or if you just work for any organization, at the next staff meeting, are you going to raise your hand and say, you know what, I want to talk about uh, sex positivity? Because in you know, say you work at Microsoft and Right now, you know that people are being sexually harassed and the only thing that they fucking do is make you watch a three hour idiotic video that the lawyers put together that's supposed to prevent sexual harassment from happening in the workplace because it walks you through this thing like, you know, you're not supposed to make boob jokes on on the job and I don't fault, you know, these, these webinars, they're doing the job, but it's not enough. We need to be, we need to change how we think. We need to change how we act. We need to change almost everything about our public sexuality and our internal sexuality. I know it's a big thing, but we got to, we got to do it. Like it's our, we see it. We know it. It's not a mystery. We know why this is happening in the same way that we know why school shootings are happening We, you know, experts know we understand the factors. We're not going to eliminate it, but we could drastically reduce it. If we do certain things, we know what to do and we're doing nothing. And guess what? It's just going to get worse. So we need to raise awareness, you know? And so it's not just like saying that I need to raise awareness or wearing a pin or something. It's standing up and saying shit. It's standing up and voting. It's making it a topic, in the same way that we need to make racism a topic and sexism a topic, and all the other things that go unsaid, and uh, the power, the powered, and the privilege get to run the show. Because that's another thing to point out is that if Larry Nasser were black, do you think this would have been different? If Larry Nasser were, I don't know. Mexican, or if Larry Nasser had a lisp, or if Larry Nasser was an immigrant with an accent, would he have been given the same leeway? I don't think so, so that's a whole other part of this. He's an innocent suburban you know docker's wearing white guy he's nice, aren't they nice? you know Dr Huxtable isn't he nice um the other thing that needs to change, this is just one humongous soapbox for me. This is fun. The other thing that needs to effing change is the culture of gymnastics and sports in general. Sports is, the, the, the culture of sports in our country are going the wrong direction. We, we like to think we're going in the right direction with a lot of things. We are not when it comes to sports. We're going in the wrong direction. Sports are supposed to be for fun. They're supposed to be for entertainment. They're supposed to be about learning camaraderie and how to work with your fellow people. How to work on a team, how to socialize, how to depend on people, how to deal with losing, how to, you know, how to be a a, a gracious winner. It's not sports are not supposed to be. Gymnastics is not supposed to be designed to ruin people's lives. You know, I get it that you want to succeed, but geez, you know, the pain and the trauma that these... You you watch this documentary, this HBO documentary, and you you just like, what is happening to these kids? Now, put aside the fact that uh, some of these are 18-year-olds going in, you could say, well, they're willingly going along with it. I I, I still question that, but this is happening to four-year-olds. Four, five, six, seven-year-olds are being you know signed up for this super high competitive gymnastics organization and being beaten literally into a system of obedience of not ta- they they lay this all out in the in the HBO documentary really clear it was very visceral you get a very visual representation of this because in gymnastics y- you're used to people putting hands on you so to spot you, like you're about to do a flip, and the coach has to has to you know spot you, has to grab onto you, there's a lot of physical you know, gra- you know adults grabbing onto the kids and pointing them in the right direction, making them stretch in particular ways. And then you know, in the doctor's office, the doctor is also stretching them and grabbing them. You know, there's just a lot of hands on stuff, and I'm not saying that's inherently bad, but it contributes, let's just put it that way. And what's happening to these kids is they're being socialized to endure pain. And this is very clear in the documentary. The children are being socialized to endure pain, and they're being socialized to shut up about it. Because if you complain about the pain, you get kicked out of the team, and your, your aspirations of being a worthwhile human being are dashed. And that's what we're teaching these kids is in order to be a worthwhile human being, you've, you've, you've not only got to be good, but you've got to be the best. And you might say, well, you know, I'm not doing that to my kids there. You know, my kid isn't in Olympics-level training. But if you're a typical suburban family, you got kids that are, like, massively into soccer, massively into track, massively into football, massively into basketball or something, swimming. And there's a version of that, like, you know, I grew up playing sports a lot. I was captain of the football team, captain of my wrestling team. I liked sports a lot, but I was taught, and I, you know, wanted, I, I had aspirations of, you know, getting a scholarship to college at one point. And I worked hard, and I was competitive, but in the 80s, things were different, The culture around sports was like, yeah, you know, kids, they play sports, they run around, they hit each other, and they go home, and that's that. And, you know, maybe some of them would go to scholarship. I don't know, it doesn't really matter. That was just the kind of rural, suburban culture I grew up in. People didn't really have high aspirations. You know, they, they were just like, you know, you get a regular job, and you're fine. I don't remember anyone talking with me about Ivy League schools or anything like that. It was just about, like, yeah, do your best. Make sure you go to college. Uh, you know, do well in sports. Um, learn the lessons you need to learn in life, and um, but also try to enjoy yourself along the way. You know, sports are mainly for fun for kids. Kids, when kids are playing sports, ninety-nine percent of it should be fun, just fun. It shouldn't be about winning. <laughs> it shouldn't be about um, being the best. It shouldn't be about at you know aspiring to be an Olympic athlete. And I know we need that in order to have Olympic athletes, but maybe we don't need Olympic athletes that badly. Or maybe we should tone it down a little bit and let, let, you know, let the Olympic athletes just kind of be regular human beings who just happen to be good at gymnastics rather than their entire lives being dictated by uh, a suppression of pain and a suppression of their assertiveness and um, the a suppression of their needs to be left alone sometimes. So uh, we need to change our sports culture and I, as I said it's not going in the right direction. As as parents have more time and sort of more effort put into their kids, there's there's even more effort to create and and then you create these organizations. You know like this is another systems theory kind of thing that you know so I I blame our system for Larry Nasser to some extent and I blame our system for our sports culture because our society um, privileges sports a lot, right? So if someone's really good at baseball, you're like, oh, you know, how's your kid doing? Oh, you know, he he made the all-star baseball team. Oh, wow, good for you. And, you know, that's what we say, right? Same way, like, oh, my kid got straight A's. Oh, good for you. You must be really proud. And that's fine. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. But what if your kid was just um, really a good listener, which I would much rather have than a good baseball player or a four O two. I would much rather have a kid who is just a really great listener. Well, what do you say? Oh, well, my kid's getting a lot of D's and C's, and he didn't make the baseball team, but, man, is he a good listener? How many people are going to be like, wow, good for you. You must be so proud. We have a backward society. <laughs> Our society, or, well, you know, my son, he, he's just so loving towards his younger sister. He's terrible at school and he's probably never going to go to college and he's probably going to be a janitor for the rest of his life. But man, is he so kind to his younger sister? You can't put that on a bumper sticker, friends. Why? Because of us. It's not because of them. We don't point at politicians. We point at us. We're the ones that, you know, go, ooh, you must, I'm so, you must be so proud of your kids because your kids are doing well in school and doing well in sports. We're the ones that don't ask. Well, okay, fine. He's doing well in school and sports, but is he a nice person? Is he is he a quality human being? Is he going to make the world a better place? Plenty of people are good at sports and get straight A's and end up destroying the world. I don't give a fuck about grades and how well they're doing sports. Is this is this a did you raise a quality human being? That's us. That's on us. That's our fault. So we need to change everything about that. (laughs) We need to change our legal system. Uh, Talk to anyone who's been through a rape investigation or a sexual harassment investigation, and you will find that the system does not really know how to deal with it well. And it's not very just. Uh, Sometimes it is, but a lot of times it's not. So there's that. Also, how do we actually address the perpetrators once they're caught? Do we lock them up for two years and then let them out? That's not very effective. We need to treat them. We need to observe them. You know, Putting them on a registry doesn't do much. It's, it's, a, it's a false political measure. If we actually want to change things, we need to ask the experts what we should be doing and we need to spend the money. We need to spend those taxes, but we don't usually do that. What else do we need to do? Well, we need to reach out to perpetrators more. We need to start actually reaching out to perpetrators. That's where it begins, right? That's where the abuse begins is with the perpetrators. Well, if we can reach out to them, and many of them want to be reached out to, we can actually help them and get them to stop doing it. We know how to do that. It's not 100% effective, of course, but it is effective with many people. If we can get them into the fold of the experts who know how to coach these people away from taking those actions and towards developing a more healthy sexuality, then think of all the victims we could eliminate the victimization we could reduce. Are we doing that? Some people are. Not enough. Well we what we're doing, one of the biggest efforts that our society is doing is doing these YouTube videos where we basically shame people. And I'm on the fence as to whether or not I think this is a good idea, but it's clearly not the everything that needs to be done. But if you've seen these on YouTube you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, what these vigilant they're vigilantes, they're just regular men who will go on the internet and will basically like um you know catfish someone who's looking for a kid. It's like to catch a predator, it's like amateur to catch a predator. And then they meet him at a gas station or something, they bring their their camera and they just film the guy and they're like, "Hey, you're a pedophile. You were coming here to meet a 13-year-old girl. Well, guess what, pal? That was me chatting with you." And you're an asshole and you're a monster. You know, they'll just ridicule the guy and they'll post it on the internet. <laughs> and on some level, it's like, you know, if you're a pedophile, you kind of deserve what you get on some level, you know? But on the other hand, it, it it's so demonizing to them. And is it really helping? I don't, it, it, it might be kind of, but... It's such a far cry from what we need to be doing, which is we need to actually be reaching out to them and saying, look, I know you are struggling with this urge and we at this organization will keep you anonymous, will protect you. If you come to us, we will help you. We won't judge you. We're not going to lock you up. We're going to legitimately work with you alongside you to help you live the life you want to live and to not harm other people because a part of you wants that and we definitely want that. Are we doing that? No. And a lot of people who, when I suggest this, they'll say, how dare you uh, treat these monsters like they're human beings? These, these, All these, you know, I always get these comments on YouTube. Um, those, the, those perpetrators need to be, you know, hung from a tree. And I get it. I get the anger. Believe me. I get the anger I'm angry too and I'm not so sure that some of them don't need to be hung from a tree I don't know that's up to the legal system I mean you know hung from a tree slash in prison for the rest of their life I don't know but what I do know is right now we have perpetrators in our society that are reachable and what are we doing to reach them Uh, we would rather argue about gun control right we would rather uh, nitpick on one of Trump's tweets. We'd rather watch you know, Stephen Colbert and laugh at uh, a senator. That's what we'd rather do. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but what are we actually doing to change our society? What are you actually doing? Now, some of you are doing a lot. I know some of you are doing a lot. But most people aren't doing much and by not doing anything one you're letting it happen and two by not doing anything you're basically just upholding the status quo you know if you're at a PTA meeting and you're just like at what point are we going to talk about actually talking and educating our kids about sexuality in general not just diseases and and let's say you just don't stand up and say anything well you're participating in the problem and i'm not i'm not yelling at you <laughs> I'm saying, what an opportunity for all of us to change what we can do from our small little point. And, you know, maybe we'll risk a little bit of stigmatization. Maybe we'll risk a little bit of frowning from other people. But what a wonderful thing we can do to participate in the change. Another thing we need to do is we need to um, figure out why people do this kind of thing we need to research it more. There's many opposing theories. It's hard to know why we do this because we don't really know why we do anything. But, you know, I mean, there's some things we know, we have pretty good theories around, like why we eat food or why we have sex. It's pretty obvious because a lot of animals do that, but if not all. But, you know, why, why do some people have this tendency, this urge? Well, the research shows that a lot of these people have emotional regulation problems, a lot of them have cognitive distortions around sexuality. A lot of them have social difficulties. They have a hard time relating to other people, and they and a, a lot of them, if not all of them, have deviant sexual arousal, meaning that they're aroused by um, children. Some of them are impulsive, and some of them are compulsive. So some of their impulsive is like bad planning, acting without thinking. Um, you know, these are like psychopaths. You just sort of you're just impulsive. But some people are compulsive, meaning they have a massive itch to do this sort of thing, and they have intrusive thoughts and urges to do this sort of thing. So there's different types of pedophiles. And many of them have been abused themselves. Research shows that I don't know, anywhere between thirty percent and eighty percent of them have self reported sexual abuse in their past. So this is a little hard thing to measure. Obviously, you know, thirty to eighty percent. It's a pretty wide range, right? Because it all depends on you asking perpetrators to tell the truth and to know the truth about their past. Because many people, particularly men and boys, have actually been what we'd categorize as being sexually assaulted on some level or sexually abused, but they don't categorize it in their head as sexual abuse. Umberto, for example, has talked on this podcast a number of times about him having been absolutely sexually abused by an older girl by a, a teenage girl um, for a long period of time. She sexually abused him, just flat out sexually abused him. And for many years, he did not think of it as sexual abuse. It wasn't only until he was in therapy that I think he started to really realize like, wait a second, was that sexual abuse? Because society doesn't help, right? So, anyway, um, one of the things we need to break that cycle, right? Right. What else do we need to do? Well, we need to destigmatize sexuality. I've been talking about this. We need to. Sexuality in general needs to be destigmatized. Sex, sex is something that most of us do. Most of us like. You know, most of us like nachos, and we don't stigmatize nachos. Most of us like, um, I don't know, fireworks on Fourth of July, unless you have a dog, in which case you hate it. Most of us like Stranger Things, the TV show, and we talk about it. Most of us like sex. How many people are directly talking about their own sex life? And I know I always get pushback on this. Like some people are like, I don't want to hear about other people's sex life. In fact, it triggers me. Well, the fact that it triggers you is in part, not entirely, but in part because of the stigmatization in society about it. Let me give an example. So let's say you're traumatized by a car crash. Well, Driving cars isn't stigmatized in our society. Maybe it should be, but driving cars is not stigmatized. So the next time you see a car or hear a car, you're just, after you've in a car crash, you're instantly going to start seeing and hearing about cars. You're, the knowledge of cars is so unstigmatized that it's just out there. And so right after the assault and, or right after the, um, the, the trauma, you're going to instantly become like sort of desensitized to the fact that cars are still in your world. Well, when it comes to sex, we're so quiet and so weird about sex and we only talk about certain very narrow aspects of sexuality that after you're traumatized by sex, everything sexual kind of gets associated with the trauma because there's no normalization of any sexuality after the trauma. In the same way that after you get in a car crash, cars are normalized. You know, car crashes are bad. that's, That's trauma. But cars are just kind of in the world but when it comes to sex like sex is just so stigmatized and so underground that um after the trauma uh it 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 the the trauma the real trauma and the real trauma reaction and the ptsd that you have becomes associated with just sex in general because sex in general is stigmatized i hope that makes any sense but anyway my point is is we need to destigmatize sexuality like Let me give an example of this. So at the 11 hour, we just had our 11th anniversary show in which me and Umberto podcasted for 11 straight hours. And toward the end, we broke out the bottle of champagne and we got a little punchy, particularly Umberto, if I can say that. And I decided to do this uh, personality test on Umberto's kinks. And so I, I threw it to the audience on YouTube chat. I said, you know, who wants to hear Umberto talk about how kinky he is and I think the listeners thought well this is going to be you know what three minutes or something well this was an online test that I didn't realize it, it had 68 questions every time I say this to someone they're like why wasn't it 69 questions Which <laughs> is sort of a litmus test for the kind of person you are but so there's 68 questions it, it took a long time and so it's very explicit 68 questions about every preference Umberto had sex, sexually and during it, I'm because I'm such a completist. I was like, "Well, I gotta, I gotta finish it. I can't end halfway through this test. I gotta find the result. You know, I gotta. You know, this test is gonna spit out a number about how kinky he is." And I think it went okay, but looking back, I wish I hadn't done it because it was a little long and it was just a little silly. But um, after it was all said and done, I was i I was going to scrap the whole thing but then i started actually posting parts of the 11 hour show on on you know the podcast i started you know publishing certain excerpts that i thought were kind of listenable i I still think none of it is really all that listenable but people were asking for it you know so i started posting and i and i thought the the kink test which was about 20 minutes i thought i was just going to completely erase that whole thing i was like that that uh that's i don't know what it is i just i don't want to subject the listeners to any of that stuff but then I had a thought. Now, this is me standing up in the PTA meeting and saying, like, um, let's put this on the agenda. Well, I listened back to the audio of me and Umberto talking about Umberto's kinks, and there wasn't anything in there that was um, horrible. There was, no, there was no shaming. There was, uh, well, maybe a little bit of jokes here and there. But overall, the message was Umberto was completely fine talking about his sexual preferences, And what's wrong with that? What if it, you know, we we just did the uh, 11 hours of podcasting talking about various, you know, our favorite TV shows, our favorite movies, our favorite concerts, our favorite albums in detail, in full description. This kinkiness test was actually pretty surface, if you ask me. And I was thinking about not publishing it because it was too rated R. And I thought, why is this... A problem: An adult talking about consensual acts that he prefers to do with other people or by himself. Why is this a bad thing? Why is it so naughty? You know Why is talking about um, psychopathy or murder or sexual abuse OK, and talking about just someone's sexual preferences not OK. And you have the option not to listen to it. The episode's going to clearly be labeled Umberto's Kinks, you know. If you don't want to listen to it, you don't have to. That's totally, I'm not going to make people listen to it, that's for sure. But why would I, so I actually, and I actually showed it to Stacy, my wife. I said, you know, what do you think about this? Because I I don't know if I want to publish it. She listened to a little bit of it. She's like, well, I don't know what, there's nothing in there that's bad and it's, Kind of nice to hear someone just talk uh, without shame about their sexual preferences, and I was like, "Done and done. Let's let's publish this thing." So we need to destigmatize sexuality. And again, if you're triggered by sexuality, then uh, we also need to, as a society, protect people with trauma by providing trigger warnings, like I did to this episode. By only talking about certain kinds of things. We we just need to have a better interface with people who are traumatized of all kinds. But just because some people have PTSD around sexual matters doesn't mean we need we need to be completely silent about sex in general, right? I think we could agree about that. So I think we need to destigmatize sexuality. It's not a brilliant thing I'm saying, but it's something I'm pointing out. Um, but more importantly, we need to effing listen to children. And I don't understand why this is so hard. Again, ageism, children are second-hand citizens. We need second-class citizens. We need to listen to children. It's just that simple. When a child tells us something that happened to them, we need to listen. We need to value their feelings. And we need to understand that they're children and they're not going to say it in an articulate way. So if a child comes to you and says, um, so Johnny touched me... You need to say like, oh, you know, this kid might not have the language for what happened to them. I might have to take some time to figure out what's going on here. And then I need to respond appropriately and in a way that doesn't make it worse for the victim. Like if Jenny comes up to you and says Johnny touched her and you find out that Johnny on the playground touched her vagina And, you know, you can respond by going straight over to Johnny and slapping him across the face or calling the police and having the police investigate and talk to the kid. There's a lot of different options here, right? And again, consult with an expert, which I'll get into more in a bit here. So one of the things that I thought about in preparation for this, one of the final things I thought about is like some of you people out there are parents of young children and you're going to be scared. You're gonna be like, "Holy shit!" So what am I supposed to do? <laughs> I mean, you know, I can destigmatize at the PTA meeting all I want, but like, what am I gonna do about my kid? My kid is in a gym, on a gymnastics team. My kid goes to the doctor sometimes. My kid spends time with uh, their aunts and uncles or cousins in, behind closed doors, and I don't see what happens. Or with grandparents, I don't know. How am I supposed to know what's gonna happen? Well, here's the thing it's not very likely that this level of abuse is going to happen to your kid. It's very likely that your kid is going to be sexually harassed at school or at work or something. It's not very likely cuz you know the Larry Nassers of the world are rare. I, w- I really want to make that clear. Because what I don't want people walking around and thinking like every coach and every physician and every everyone who takes interest in your kids that's nice is a is a predator. The vast majority of people are not even close to being a predator. I, during a time in my life, was a therapist, an in-home family therapist. And when I wanted to meet alone with the kids, I would go to their bedroom because it was one of the only rooms where we could be alone. You know, we couldn't take up the living room or the kitchen or something else. So we'd go to the kid's bedroom and we'd be in there talking for a couple hours sometimes about very intimate things about their life their depression their sadness their their anger their hopes their dreams and some of these clients would be young girls would be women i mean uh, you know teenage girls or even 10-year-old girls and i'm a man you know and i'm in there in their bedrooms alone behind closed doors and Uh, the parents could trust me because I never did anything and never wanted to and never would. You would have to kill me to do something uh, of a sexual harming nature to those kids. even thinking about it is just completely repulsive and makes me sweat. It's awful to think about. And what I wouldn't want is for the parents to be like, you can't go in there alone with her. Now they, you know, I don't mind saying sometimes they did keep the door open. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes the kid would be like, "Ah, but I want the door closed because i don 't want my parents hearing or you know um, eavesdropping, but you know it was fine, but the point is is like i 'm not saying we all need to be paranoid about every single person because remember women abuse too, so we don 't need to be paranoid about all the boys and all the you know, all the adult males and females who are um, you know alone with kids that it's it 's extremely unlikely to happen, so that 's one thing, but we do need to do something that doesn 't mean it doesn 't happen because it does. So here's the things we need to do. One is you need to make sure your child knows their rights. This is very important. And many of you parents are doing this out there. You just have to you have to talk to people in their age. So if a kid is four, you don't lay it out like you would to a 15-year-old. You talk to them as if they're four. There's ways to do it. I won't go into details, but, you know, there's ways to do it. You talk to – I've done it before. You talk to a four. – I've done it many times, and I've coached parents on this level. You, you talk to your four-year-old in a four-year-old manner that really helps them understand that their body is theirs and that they have the right to say no to certain touching, and they also have the right to tell you, you as a parent or anyone else that they don't like something that's happening. Now, the worry that some parents have is like, well, am I going to create a kid that is really scared of people? It's like, there's a way you can word it that won't happen. The other worry that parents have sometimes is, well, am I going to create a kid that's going to be constantly complaining about being touched when it's just regular things that are happening? You know, am I going to create a kid who's going to call CPS on me because I, you know, touched my kid in the bathtub or something by washing them? And the thing is, is like, one that's not likely to happen but two if it does you just deal with it you know say your kid calls cps cps comes to your house you're like oh um so i think this is because i you know you just you just deal with it it's it's not that big of a deal cps is usually there to help um, and very unlikely that that would happen anyway the other thing is is you have to make sure they know what they know they can come to you and that you're not going to freak out this is very important so it's, it's not enough just to tell your kids, look, you can come to me if, if someone touches you. So say you're talking to your 10-year-old, and you're like, look, son, if someone touches you, you know, inappropriately, I want you to know you can come to me. Okay, that's great. But you also have to say, and I'm not going to freak out. I'm going to, we're going to work on this together, and you're going to be a part of the, of the team. And in, in other words, you're telling, you have to tell, you have to give the very clear impression to the kid that they will have power in that situation because say you're 10 years old and your coach, you know, sexually molests you and you're, you're not, you're, you're very confused. You don't know what to do because you like the coach and you want to stay on the team, but you also don't want it to happen anymore. You're also very insecure about fitting in at school and you, you just don't. You're just really scared, and you know or you think that if you go to your parents and tell them what happened and they believe you, they're going to call the cops, they're going to call the parents, they're going to pull you off the team, the whole school will know, you're going to be stigmatized, all these horrible things will happen, and and you don't tell your parents. So you have to give the victim power by saying, you will be in the driver's seat, and I'll have some feelings and I'll have some thoughts, but you will be in the driver's seat. And we'll work on that together and you know, if you don't want to go to the cops, we won't go to the cops. So I want you to know I'm on your side and, and if you do tell me you're gonna be in power. Now sometimes you have to override the kids, but the point is is that you you want to help them understand that they'll be a part of the decision making process and that you're not gonna just run off and, and do something without checking with them. Um, also another thing you have to give the impression to the kids is that you're not going to, you're not going to become unglued and sort of lose your sanity. You have to give the impression to the kids that you're not going to cry yourself to sleep every night because some kids don't tell their parents because they don't want to hurt their parents. Okay. The other thing that you need to do is that if they do come to you with any level of disclosure, you need to get professional help regarding how to respond. There's no way The average person, or even people who are, even therapists, there's no way that you would know exactly the right way to respond when your kid tells you about something like this. There's no way anyone knows what to do. In the same way that um, when you know I was a young novice therapist, and but you know I was practicing, and presumably I knew how to deal with suicide and suicide attempts and suicide. I, you know, suicidal ideation. I dealt with it in my clients already at that point in my career, but I had a friend of mine who was in the middle of attempting and my mind went blank. I just thought, what do I do now? If I wasn't connected to that situation, I would have been able to advise professionally, but I was in the middle of it, man. I couldn't think straight. So I called the crisis line (laughs) And I said, I'm a therapist, and my friend is in the middle of attempting. So I don't know what to do. And they guide and they walked me through it, and I did it. And if I was outside, I would have advised me the same way. But I, I was in the middle of it; I couldn't think straight. So, just because you might think you know what you're you're gonna you know what you're supposed to do, you're guaranteed to lose that wisdom if you're actually in the middle of a situation. Seek professional help. Seek a therapist that you know specializes in, isn't in this sort of thing or something. Um, also, like I said, remember that women abuse too. It's a big mistake to think, well, you know, she's a woman. She's a, she's a 22 year old girl. She's not going to hurt my kids. She's less likely, but she's, she's, you know, it's possible. Also remember that groomers will figure out a way to manipulate you to leave your child alone with them. It's very important. So if, if if you get the vibe like someone is really trying to work an angle, that they're really trying to be alone with your kid, that's a sign. Because like for me, for example, when I was an in-home family therapist, and I was like, okay, well, let's go talk in your room. And I would ask the parents, is it, is it okay if I shut the door because I want to you know create confidentiality? And the parents are just like, no, nah, I'd like you to leave the door open. And I was like, okay. So I just left the door open. Nope, I didn't flinch. I didn't roll my eyes. It was just, okay, it's fine. I'll work with that. No big deal. And so we would do that. Now, if I had said, well, you know, I really kind of need the door to be closed because da-da-da-da. Well, that's not a sure sign, obviously, but it's in the, in the direction. Let's just put, put it that way. So, you know, be on the lookout for, and also be on the lookout for people who do that in conjunction with a ton of charm a ton of like, you know, say, say there's a new person in your life who really likes your kids and you really like that person. It's just a yellow flag. Again, these kind of Larry, the Larry, the Larry Nassers of the world are rare, very rare individuals. So it's, it's not likely, but you don't want to take chances. And again, there are measures that you can do. The biggest thing you do is empower your kids to know that they have rights and that they can come to you and that you're not going to freak out. That's a big thing. Because that closes the loop. Because if something does happen, because the, the Larry Nassar situation, he abused little by little and increased on each victim. Usually, not all of them. But it was like a little bit of abuse here, and then a little bit more, and further down the road. So if all of, if just one of those kids was able to come forward when it just started, then a lot of it could have been prevented. So it's not that you necessarily – because there's no way to prevent anything from happening to your kids, I'm here to tell you. It's just not possible. The, you, well, you could. You could lock him in your house all day long, but that would create a different kind of harm, right? You have to let your kid go out into the world. They have to learn how to deal with life. And that's going to put them at risk of stuff like this. So you can't prevent it from from starting, you know? But you can nip it in the bud as soon as it starts, you know? You can nip the trauma in the bud. So... Uh, So that's just another way to think about it. So what else can I say? Um, All right. Well, what am I asking you to do in summary? Well, I'm asking you to listen to children and victims. Listen, believe them, you know, listen. Also talk with children about their rights and talk with children about how they You know, are to respond to someone when they touch them in a way that they don't want to be touched. Also, don't also tell your kids you're not going to freak out. Also, seek an expert when you hear about something. Don't don't do it alone. Also, you need to stop electing people who openly admit to sexually harming others without remorse. When we have elected officials who openly admit to sexual assaulting other human beings without remorse, in fact bragging about it, when we elect those people to office, we are saying something. We are saying it's okay, and that people don't matter, and money matters, and fame matters, and perhaps women don't matter, or pretty women don't matter, or something. We need to stop doing that. I'm just, I'm just gonna say that. We need to promote positive sexuality. Also don't put your kids in sports that promote massive obedience and suppression of pain. If you do that, you'll create very obedient, quote unquote, good kids who are miserable on the inside and open to abuse on the outside. Also tell your legislators to listen to experts on how to prevent sexual abuse. You know, Tell you tell them, because you can't vote for this because no legislators are coming forward. And saying, you know, I'm on the prevention of sexual abuse ticket. You know, there's I, I don't know any politicians doing that. I'm sure some are, but I don't know of any. So because we that's one that we can change our political system. We can change our social system. We can we can change our school systems. We've got to change the systems. That's what's going to prevent the Larry Nassers from doing this for 25 plus years. Again, the Larry Nassers of the world will probably always be among us to some degree. We can probably cut down on the prevalence of them, but they're probably always going to crop up here and there. And there's things we can do. We can treat the perpetrators. We can reach out to them instead of demonizing them. We can provide more money for mental health treatment in general, which just kind of helps the, the victims and it you know, might help the perpetrators as well to stop them from doing this sort of thing. We need to change our society and how we look at sexuality and how we look at victims and how we react to people like this in the media. There's so many things that we need to change in order for the Larry Nassers of the world who are currently doing bad things. You understand we haven't put an end you know, right now just because it's not in the media doesn't mean it's not happening. There's thousands of other Larry Nasser's men and women, perpetrators, doing exactly what Larry Nassar has done to people right now. And those victims are being shamed and being coerced into silence, just like Larry Nassar's victims were. So we are, we are not anywhere near being done with this issue. So do what you can, please, for all of our sakes, because you deserve it you you know that we all deserve that don't you we all deserve that